It's time for Twit This Week in Tech. We've got a doctor, a priest, and a lawyer on this show. Well, maybe not a doctor. Dan Morin is a doctor of colors, sixcolors.com. Father Robert Ballas here, the digital Jesuit, and our attorney, Denise Howell. We have lots to talk about, including the Google Oracle SCOTUS decision. I think a big victory for tech. We'll also talk about Elon Musk's boring tunnel in Las Vegas. Turns out it actually is kind of boring. (laughs) And Google I.O., can you solve the puzzle? Break out your punch cards. It's all coming up next on Twit. Podcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. This is Twit This Week in Tech, episode 818, recorded Sunday, April 11th, 2021. The Tunnel That Bored Vegas. This Week in Tech is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Finding someone to wear many hats or one very specific hat is no easy task. ZipRecruiter finds people with the right experience for your job and then invites them to apply, whether that's a civil engineer in New York or a mascot in Missouri. Try ZipRecruiter free at ZipRecruiter.com slash twit. And by Amazon Pharmacy. Amazon Prime members can save on prescription medication even when not using insurance. And get free two-day delivery. Learn more at Amazon.com slash twitrx. And by Podium. Find out how Podium can help your business reach more customers. Get started free today at Podium.com slash twit. And by Barracuda. Hackers are always looking for the weakest link in your security configuration, especially in your email security. Barracuda's new Threat Analyzer tool helps you gain visibility into your particular vulnerabilities. Visit barracuda.com slash twit. It's time for Twit This Week in Tech, the show we cover the week's tech news with a lovely panel, which is a rotating constantly. And the only reason we rotate, I love every one of them, and I want every every panel we have to be the only panel. But then I wouldn't be able to get people on that I love as much, like Denise Howell, longtime host of This Week in Law. But uh, are you still a practicing lawyer, Denise? I am indeed a practicing lawyer, yes. Intellectual property law still? Uh, yes, a bit of that. I do everything that touches online communications and the internet, basically. Well, so, you know why you're on this week. Yeah. Big I SCOTUS do. decision. Big SCOTUS yes. decision. And we always have to call in legal counsel when anything like that happens. It's always a pleasure to, to see Denise. Always a pleasure to see Father Robert Balliser, the digital Jesuit, now at digitaljesuit.com. Uh, call I'm him also from the a Vatican. practicing lawyer. And he, yes. Are you really? <laughs> No, <laughs> are there? I, mean, the I bet there are. Are there priest lawyers? Is that is, there, is that such oh, a oh, thing? Oh yes. Oh, definitely. Most definitely. And they're all Jesuits, I'm sure. A lot of them are. I think the majority of, of priests who are non-canon lawyers, but lawyers, are Jesuits. We kind of have a thing on that. Okay. There's a lot of logic involved in that, and I and I really can't parse that statement. But I'm going to take your word for it, okay? <laughs> there was an or, there was an and, there was a not. I don't know. It's too much. This is djdigitaljesuit.com. Uh, and by the way, this is where people can now go. You're going to open up to the public your Minecraft server. Right. And- this is that thing that we started a couple of uh, years back. 
it exploded because we got trolled. But then we had the, the wonderful folks from Cloudflare. They came in and they protected us. We also got in the we news. Because it know, was in the news. It was great. Black great sales story. came in. Vatican yeah, starts wonderful. Minecraft server gets hacked. It was like, it was a great headline. It was a great headline. It wasn't hacked, of course. It was just trolled. It was um, trolled. You were doing Rust. Now you're doing something called Factorio, which I'm going to get in on. Correct. And But the thing that got me, you're going to do TF2, which is probably the greatest mod game of all time. Uh, Terraria, Among Us, which is great fun. And my game, Valheim, the Viking building game. So I'm joining. I'm going to be, I'm, oh, well, I'm already a member, but I'm going to give you the five bucks a month because. Uh, we'll make you an admin, Leo. No, no, that's the last thing. <laughs> DigitalJesuit.com. And from SixColors.com, home of the. Home of the colorful graphs. It's Dan Morin. Always a pleasure to see you visiting us from Boston, it appears. Is that the Charles behind you? I mean, virtually, yes. Oh. Uh, it's, I am across the river from Boston, so it's accurate in that regard, at least. You're looking across but, the river yeah. to Boston, yes. That's right. Exactly. Are you in Cambridge? I wish I were a doctor, by the way, so that you could have a doctor, a lawyer, a and a priest walk into it would a bar. Be, it would I be a like. joke yeah. waiting to be written. I'm going to call you Dr. Morin. <laughs> doesn't matter. It's an honorary doctorate. I gave it to you. Thank you. I gave it. It to is you. an honor. Yes. So, um, boy, there's a, a whole lot of stuff. You, this panel is assembled because of the whole lot of stuff we can talk about. Uh, Dan, one of the things that we don't know what's going to happen. Uh, there were many rumors that Apple was going to do an event last month. In fact, rumor monger John Prosser had to shave his eyebrows because he got it wrong. There was not an event. He said, I'll shave my eyebrows. If there's not an Apple event on March 23rd, he is now eyebrowless. Uh, <laughs> here we are, middle of April. Uh, no event on the 13th, obviously. It's too, you know, they would have sent out invitations. So the next event could be the 20th or the 27th. And we're, Do you think there will be an event this month? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm kind of vacillating between whether they have an event or whether they just decide to do some stuff via press release or just sort of drop a video, which they've done as well. Last year, when they did that iPad Pro announcement with the Magic Keyboard, they just sort of were like, oh, here's a video. And, you know, some members of the press got pre-briefed or embargoed information. Um, but because of the pandemic, they don't have to necessarily send out invites a week in advance unless they really want to drum up an audience. And for a lot of these things, I think it's much more focused at the, the press uh, and sort of the, the diehards. And so I'm not sure whether or not they'll hold a big event, but I would be surprised if there wasn't some sort of product announcement coming in the, the back half of April because there's so much stuff that has gotten rumored that just has never showed up. They're way overdue. For, well, the most overdue for the AirTags. More than a year yeah. since they announced those. Uh, we've seen all these hints in source code and... And, and resources and things that we know they exist. Um, I'm thinking... Or, or do they? Is it a conspiracy theory? Is it all a clever ruse oh, to make no. us believe? I know. No, I, I don't believe that either. But I, I did have a moment, uh, and I was talking to my colleague Jason Snell about this, uh, where it was just sort of a... Well, do they, I mean, do they decide maybe this isn't something they want to do? Like they were sort of playing with it and they were thinking about it and maybe it's just not a market they want to be in. I don't know. It's, it's very strange to have something go on that long beforehand. It was and a never year appear. ago this month that we saw the Apple product support video that featured AirTags by accident. It was an accident, although it kind of implied that they had planned to launch this a year ago. Uh, they also, there's strong rumors there's, and they're due for an iPad Pro that's been a year. 
Yeah. Um, and of course, we know that they're looking at these new mini LED uh, displays that would be uh, eventually go to the iPad, go to the phones, and maybe even go to the laptop. I don't know if it go to the phones, but it go to the laptops. Mm-hmm. Um, they've certainly ordered them. <laughs> we know they've been right, buying right. them. Um, and then maybe, maybe an Apple TV. Could it be the chip shortage that's holding this back? Is that because this is getting worse and worse, this chip shortage? I, I'm strongly starting to think that that is playing a big part in this because if you look at sort of Apple's history of doing events in the spring, a lot of times there's an event in March or early April. Too much later than that, you start getting pretty close to WWDC, and I think they like to space stuff out a bit. We know that's and June made sense. 7th that starts right. this year. So Yeah. So, I mean, you know, once you get into May, you're like a month out, and it gets a little gets a little squishy in terms of how much stuff you want to release that much in advance. And then I think, you know, we look at the history of things like the iPad Pro getting updated, and the iPads in general, I think, tend to get some sort of bump in the spring in March or so. Uh, the last year, that's when we had the, the Magic Keyboard announcement and the revamped uh, 2020 iPad Pros. And then the iPad Air came out last fall and kind of beat the iPad Pro in a bunch of different specs. And everyone's been kind of sitting there going like, well, what about the iPad Pro? Like, what is happening with that? Isn't it going to get a new processor or something? And so there's a lot of things playing parts here the pandemic obviously but i think that chip shortage it's i huge. think that's real i think that's playing a big a big deal in this ford stopped making f-150s or they're on and off gm just stopped uh, some of its assembly lines they can't get the chips uh the chip shortage has become massive the president uh, is having a a summit 20 uh, uh, uh top executives uh from 20 different companies will be assembling at the white house on monday I don't know what you can. I mean, it's like oh, we all not, agree. Yeah, if there's a chip shortage. There's a toilet paper shortage. Let's have a summit. What are you going to do? There's a shortage. Um, yeah. now, I mean, one of the things that insulates Apple, though, is that unlike a lot of the other big manufacturers, Ford, GM, etc., they don't run a lot of their assembly lines in just-in-time format. So most yeah. of the factories, they assume that they're going to be able to get the parts they whenever pre-build. they need the parts. A lot Precisely. before they announce, even. Exactly. But, so Apple always has a huge lead time unless unless the pandemic struck right before yeah. the, the, uh, the, the, when they were getting into components. TSMC the says there. they're going to come to this uh, shortage summit <laughs> on Monday. They make the Apple chips. And Apple, yeah. uh, to kind of the cons- dismay of other companies, yeah. buys up pretty much all of the production. Uh, which has helped them up to now, but but at some point, you, you know, the pipeline runs runs low. I don't think it's merely COVID, though. I'm wondering if this also has to do with just massive increase in use. Internet service providers are now being told that new routers are 60 months off, mm-hmm. more than a year off, because the router manufacturers uh, like Xilinx can't get the chips to put in the routers. So this is this seems to me this is a, a, a kind of a multi-pronged problem. You're right, Dan, about just in time. Uh, a lot of manufacturers just wait until they need to they get the orders and they order the chips. But if they're not there, that's it. Uh, but I think it's also just uh, COVID and a huge ramp up in consumption. More people yeah, are I using mean, computer hardware every- and chips than ever before. And everything has chips yeah. in it, right? Like every single thing that you rely on now every day being at home, routers, computers, smartphones, tablets, cars. I mean, 
everything has chips in it. And people, you know, a lot of people turn to obviously consumerism in the pandemic to have like a little bit of that, like <laughs> feeling good about something, right? I'm going to buy a new, going to buy a new device, going to buy a new piece of electronics, or I'm just going to upgrade my infrastructure because I'm working from home all the time now. And that has cascaded into, I think, just huge amounts of demand. And, you know, the, the, the factories just can't keep up with that. Yeah. Well, we've seen at least a 25% boost year over year in the sales of desktops and laptops. And that's that's just those two segments. Now include all the support equipment that's sold in order to make those work remotely. And yeah, that's that's not an inconsequential boom. Well, you even, I mean, uh, Denise, you have, I don't know, Dan, do you have kids? No. No, Denise, your son is schooling at home, right? Yes, so by all choice. Of a sudden, oh, by choice, he could go in? He could, yeah. Oh, nice. His district uh, instituted a an all virtual school this year, which he enrolled in. So, yeah. if he had stayed at his same high school, he would have been back and forth. What does this week look like? What does next right. week look like That's all no year? Fun. So, we've had a lot of consistency, and it's been a good fit for. But him. you see this with a lot of families. Suddenly, you know, we needed a computer. Now everybody's mom and dad are working from home. Kids are going to school. Suddenly we need five computers, all of them running Zoom. And we need, oh, by the way, we need more bandwidth now. Uh, it's just a, it's just a, uh, you know, a cascade of, of needs all of a sudden thanks to COVID. Um, I mean, it's made, made these companies very, very, very rich. But it's also I, I would like to see at some point an analysis of what the replacement of old routers have done to the vulnerability of the edge on the Internet, because we've always talked about how vulnerable some of well, those get older, ready, like especially right. routers. Have yeah. Been. Get ready. Now that they're getting replaced, uh, is the attack surface decreased? I'd love to see that. Right. Or in, in the case of Internet service providers not getting replaced because Xilinx can't make enough right. routers. I mean, the only thing that's going to happen tomorrow at the summit is. I mean, there's nothing they can do about tomorrow or next week or next year. We're talking a couple of years. TSMC has said we're going to spend $100 billion over the next three years to build new fabs. Um, that, you know, that'll help in three <laughs> oh, yeah, that, years. That'll be ready next week. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> I think they're saying uh, 2025, something like that for these new fabs. Does the demand stretch that long too, right? I mean, like by the time they built them and it goes, maybe goes back to more of a normal level. Well, oh, I guess we've got these, oh all these extra God. fabs we built. We'll just have to find new ways to use chips. Of course, that was Oh, Intel. I think we'll do that. Yeah, maybe that's, I mean, look at, who but, would but, have thought that GM would have, or Ford would have to stop their truck production because they couldn't get enough microprocessors. You know? Remember Micron? Just, just like Henry Ford when? imagined. Yeah, right. Micron, so yeah. Micron built up a brand new factory in Texas because there was a huge demand for memory products. And right about the time that the factory came online, there was a glut and the, the bottom fell out oh, and wow. they were forced to sell the factory at a loss. So... It's interesting. We, I mean, we're kind of at that. Yes, there's a demand right now, but is that demand going to stretch out for the three what do you, years it's going to take? What to do you do if you're TSMC or Intel? Do you ignore it and just say, "Well, we'll make it," or do you say, "Well, we should jump on this because who knows what it's going to be like in three years?" Intel's building two new fabs in uh, Arizona, which is probably smart because they're also betting on geopolitical issues making it right. a problem getting mm-hmm. chips from China and chips made in the U.S. Hmm, that might be more appealing to a, a lot of American companies coming down the road. Maybe so. this is a situation where the government assists these companies to help them ride out those oh, downturns in the economy. Wow. You know, 
government's writing a lot of checks these days. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you have to. Um, but wow. Uh, maybe. I mean, that is, a, that is a national security issue. If you can't mm-hmm. build your high-tech industry, that's a problem. Yeah. Especially uh, when China is the other alternative, right? Right. Like when your other major superpower rival is the one who does control a lot of that infrastructure and is building up theirs, you kind of have to to put the money where your mouth is. Well, you got the CEOs of Ford and GM going to this event, and you know they're going to say, "What are you going to do to help us? American jobs are at stake." Uh, Biden's proposed at least a hundred billion dollars to boost, to quote, boost U.S. semiconductor production. But that's not going to change anything for years. Um, it's, an, it's a really, it's, it's a very interesting conundrum. I'm sure that we will put, we will write a check. But uh, it could be a but, I mean, bad check. A, a check is run. just a check. Yeah. What, what do you do with a check? I mean, it. it's, it's not magic. It's you not going to automatically create a factory. It. Yeah. It's a really interesting situation. Who would have thought this? You know, this is one of the things I love covering tech over the last few decades is that you try to see the future, but you de- you never do. And who would have thought the Internet's biggest problem would have been social media gone awry or that the biggest problem we would have is so much demand for, pro- for computers that we could and cars and everything else that we couldn't make enough chips to fill them all. Who would have thought that? You know, right like now there's the... someone. So there's someone in the basement of a financial services company who's writing a new algorithm that is that taking out. into account what a pandemic will do to the economy. A pandemic now increases the tech sector, uh, and that's that's you just how didn't they know learn. until then. Yeah, yeah. So say, like as a like you know uh, as a sci-fi writer as well. Like I feel like that's something that that often happens. Like you look at the sci-fi of fifties, right? And it's all about moon colonies and spaceships and space exploration. And really, nobody imagining the internet and the hugest like change that was going to come to the all of society was basically being interconnected. Far less than people talking about like, oh, well, clearly because we're in the space race right now, we're looking forward and assuming the space race extends decades into the future, if not centuries into the future, when technology basically took a sharp left turn and nobody really anticipated it. Do you make notes as you're reading the tech news going, oh, I got to put that in the, you know, the galactic <laughs> cold war. That's got, that's going to be. Yeah, in I think about it. I think about it, but it's hard, right? Because you're always like, am I throwing a dart at a dartboard that's not even going to be there? Right. Right. I wonder if that's inspiring future sci-fi writers. We, we, my generation wrote about moon colonies and, and interstellar exploration. Is there a sci-fi writer right now who's thinking about what the next Twitter is going to look like? Dan? And how that's change <laughs> galactic society? Dan? Not, not me, but somebody is. Somebody's definitely looking at the next social media actually, because it is interesting. Yeah. Uh, actually, you know, we've had Rob Reed on the show. He wrote mm-hmm. a very prescient a book about a Facebook-like entity knowing everything about everything that's going to happen and actually to the point where it could predict you were going to order a certain beer as you walked into a bar and had it ready for you, you know, when you sat down or had the ad anyway ready for you when you sat down. Um, so, yeah, it's risky, though. You're right, because because the other side of that is 10 years from now, that sci-fi feels really dated. It's yeah. like, oh, that was, yeah, clearly he was writing in 1992 because that, you know, nobody cares about that anymore. Um, uh, all right. Well, chip shortage sh- story number one. I don't, we haven't solved the problem. Uh, do you think it's going to get worse before it gets better? Very much so. Demands go anywhere. I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
It's just it's backing up right now. I mean, it's, I'm it's actually surprised up, yeah. demand has not uh, plateaued. I would have thought everybody who needed a computer got one by now, and it would have plateaued. It's not just computers, though, right? Like, it's everything. I mean, cars, like we were talking about, or, you know, right. every piece of technology that goes in your house. Set-top box, game consoles, Computing right? Like, edge. all of this yeah. stuff. Yeah. You still can't get a PlayStation 5 or Xbox Series no. X to save your life. Um, unless you have a teenager at home like I do, and he managed to score one. <laughs> but he's got lots of time on the Internet to figure that out. Uh, all right. Let's take a little break. We've got a lot of things to talk about, including Denise Howell. Uh, the long, one of the longest running court cases, 11 years in the making, Google versus Oracle, the Supreme Court put an end to it this week. And I just can't wait to hear what you have to say about it. I, I find this fascinating, but we need you to explain it all. All righty. Thank you. Our show today brought to you, by the way, it's great to have Denise here, Father Robert, Dan Morin. It's kind of like old home week. That's going to be a fun twit. Our show today brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Hiring's coming back. If you're one of those companies that's actually staffing up, hey, thank you. That's wonderful. Uh, and you ought to know about ZipRecruiter because it is simply put the easiest way to hire. If you're hiring for spring, uh, you, you've got a position. Uh, you know, I mean, somewhere out there, the perfect person, right? So how many times do we compromise, though? Well, I'm sure the perfect person is out there, but this is the best we could do, and maybe you'll regret it down the road. It's so important because a company is just made up of people, and the people you hire can make or break your company. So don't compromise. The best person for the job is out there. You just need a way to find that person. You're searching for a needle in a haystack. There's no better way to do it with ZipRecruiter. First of all, as soon as you post on ZipRecruiter, your post goes to 100-plus job sites with one click of the mouse so you're reaching out you're casting the the broadest net possible uh it goes to social networks it goes everywhere and it goes everywhere in the country where and for every industry whether you're hiring a civil engineer in new york or an attorney in colorado even if you're hiring a mascot in missouri yes that is a real posting <laughs> zip recruiter can put it out everywhere but then then it does something pretty remarkable because people come to ZipRecruiter to apply for jobs. They have on file hundreds of thousands of current resumes. They apply their matching technology to their existing resumes. They match your job to people who are looking for work. When they get a good match, they actively invite that person to apply. They say, we found a job for you. That's great for people applying at ZipRecruiter, but it's great for you too because it means you're going to get qualified applicants fast. Four out of five employers, 80%, who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Now, we've used ZipRecruiter many times. In our experience, it's not been a day. It's been hours. I mean, they start rolling in fast. It's an amazing solution. And when I say rolling in, it doesn't come to your phone, your inbox. It goes into the ZipRecruiter interface, which makes it very easy. They recommend people who fit well. You can scan the resumes because they're all pre-formatted, so it's easy to read. And then you can pick the right person fast. Try it right now for free. Uh, only our listeners get this link, ZipRecruiter.com slash twit. ZipRecruiter.com slash twit. For any industry, anywhere, it's the best. ZipRecruiter.com slash T-W-I-T. You can try it free right now. We thank you so much, ZipRecruiter, for supporting This Week in Tech. We thank you, 
This Week in Tech listeners for supporting us by using that URL so they know you saw it here. ZipRecruiter.com slash twit. Google, Oracle, 11 years in the making. I have to say I did not see this one coming, Denise. No, I didn't see it coming either. Uh, and And yes, 11 years is a long time, but... I just want to put it in perspective, 11 years to go up and down the appellate system the way this one did is really not that long a period of time in our U.S. judicial system. I looked this up for you, Leo, uh, because you were talking about how long running the case was. Uh, Apparently, there was a case in the United States that holds the dubious distinction of being the the longest courtroom battle. Um, it involved uh, an estate, and it went on for fifty-seven years. Oh, oh my goodness, <laughs> that's that's like a lifetime. The plaintiff, oh, wow. it's maybe several lifetimes. Myra Clark Gaines was her name, and of course, there's Dickens Bleak House, which revolves around Jarndyce versus Jarndyce, famously. And oh I yeah, yeah, find, yeah. Find exactly how long that famously. It's still going you know, 150 years later. Yes, exactly. Well, um, Microsoft so, DOJ went on from '98. Well, that might have been not quite 20 years. It went on for quite a while. So I guess right. it isn't unheard of. What's really uh, feels unusual is is the way this went because Google would win, then Google would lose, then Google would win, then Google would lose. The the appellate court would throw it back to the lower court, would throw it back to the appellate court. This thing was ping ponged back and right. forth. Yeah, there were a lot of so there were a lot of issues here that required a jury to help work them out when you have a fair use argument like the one that Google ultimately prevailed on. There are a lot of facts that a jury has to determine, but then it's ultimately up to the court and the judicial system once they have all those factual determinations to decide if fair use happened. Um, so there's that complicating factor we needed. It, it couldn't just happen in the absence of a jury. So um, some of these issues were jury issues that go back to the trial that started uh, almost 11 years ago now. Actually, the the trial started almost instantly after Oracle bought Sun. Mm-hmm. And Sun had invented Java, uh, which was a write-once-run-anywhere programming language. It's still probably to this day with the most popular programming language in the world. Certainly, it's right up there. Um, I remember interviewing Jonathan Schwartz, who was the CEO of Sun at the time. And he couldn't say this at the time, but during the interview, which was on triangulation, he said... You know, I knew something was up because when we started meeting with Oracle about all the assets and I started talking about Java, I could see the lawyers in the room lighting up. Oracle immediately recognized what this meant. In fact, at one point, uh, the courts had told Google, you owe Oracle $9 billion for infringing on their Java API. So... This this goes way back to, to the purchase of Sun. Might even have been the motivating reason Oracle purchased Sun. But remember, you, you have to go back even before that because that was the start of the legal case. The start of the saga actually happened, I think, in 2003 when Google, Schmidt, approached Sun and said, we want to license Java SE. We want to and use it for Android, right? They wanted to use it for Android, but they had a stipulation. They said, look, we want to open source this. And Sun didn't want to do that because they felt that they were just going to fork it and then they would lose their licensing fee. So Google 
decided to call off the deal. And instead, they made a clean room version of Java. So the, the entire case hinges off was that actually a clean room? No, it doesn't. And, and, yeah. But it did in the early days. But it was it did, yeah. <laughs> eventually. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Denise Howell, because you know law. This is complicated. But eventually, that did not was not the issue. The issue was whether a clean room version of Java was somehow protected. Whether the APIs that Google duplicated, they didn't use Oracle code. They didn't use Sun's code. They just duplicated the APIs because otherwise a program expecting Java wouldn't be able to use right. whatever Dalvik or whatever Google ended up writing. And then, so at one point, it, a jury, I think, ruled that APIs were copyrightable. Right. That and was the turning point. Yes, it was. And you're right. There's no question that copying happened here. And the, right. the opinion itself, I, I recommend Justice Breyer's opinion. It's 62 pages long Holy as God. I have it open on. Did he seem to really understand it? Okay, so this is really interesting, I think. The very okay. beginning of the opinion... Uh, starts out with, and let me find the exact language here because you'll love it. Um, one second. I'll just I'll just mention a couple of uh, while you're looking that up turning points yeah. in this. Uh, Judge Alsup, who was uh, who was covering this case in the Northern District of California, the first jury trial, Oracle v. Google, very famously in 2012, learned Java. <laughs> learned Java so that he could see if it was because the issue at this point was what was copied and 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 Oracle it came down to one routine the range check routine that that Oracle felt Google literally copied the judge learned Java and wrote his own range check routine. Just to see if if that was a copy or just the logical, likely way to write such a thing. The judge said, I couldn't have told you the first thing about Java before this trial, but I have done and still do a lot of programming myself in other languages. I've written blocks of code like range check a hundred times or more. I could do it. You could do it. It's so simple. <laughs> he wrote it in Java and uh, the judge who learned Java. Um, there, was a, there was a line from his decision. That said, yes. so long as the specific code used to implement a method is different, anyone is free under the Copyright Act to write his or her own code to carry yes. out the exact same function. Of course. As long – it does not matter that the declaration or method header is identical. That, that was his final verdict. Yeah. But that all went out the window. <laughs> yeah. Because it ended right. up being, all right, all right, you didn't steal the code. <laughs> but – but. We have you copied co the code, you though. Copied Nobody's the ever oh, they disputed, never disputed that they that. copied. Okay. Yeah. They got away 37, with it. So that, 37 examples, which included documentation. So there were comments that okay, were brought so over. Okay, they clearly copied it. But that wasn't yeah. what they were suing over in the long run, right? I, uh, it's well, so, so confusing. The jury found that it was a fair use, and ultimately that's the determination that the Supreme Court got behind, got behind in a big way. So, And, and this, was the, what, this was very important because... If you could say, oh, no, I own an API, no one can copy it, it would break the, the world as Correct. we know it. You couldn't write and, code anymore. Right. And actually, I should correct myself because I just contradicted what I said earlier. Juries find facts that go to the fair use determination. It was Judge Alsop, the <laughs> wonderful um, guy who threw himself 
so headlong into this so that he could understand it so thoroughly uh, that made that initial fair use determination. And, so he and said, it's okay. That's fair use. That's fair use. And, and ruled that's in what, Google's favor. Yes. But then and, and Oracle appeals. Had, mm-hmm. And, uh, and there's, there's a whole question. The, the issue that you hit on earlier, and it's still, um, it was still very much an issue when it got to the Supreme Court, the copyrightability of an API uh, was something that uh, the federal circuit, which was the court of appeal here, found, yes, APIs can be copyrightable. The Supreme Court has, has uh, punted on that. They've decided that since the fair use argument is established, it doesn't matter whether APIs are copyrightable or not. Ah. They just assumed for purposes of writing their decision that they were and decided we don't, we don't have to decide that critical issue. There's a lot. This is a changing area of the law. There's this is a technology is changing all the time. This may be something that we want to reexamine at some point or another. Um, they did reverse that part of the federal circuit's decision and decided we're we're not going to say whether it's copyrightable or not. That was at pr- this point. Was that wise to dodge that? Probably. Not. Um, well, Justice Thomas didn't think so. He dissented. Uh, but I, personally, I think it probably was wise. <laughs> I think that there there's a lot to unpack in the squishy nature as far as the law is concerned of an API. It it very much straddles this boundary between copyright and patent. So they said it might be copyrightable and might not be, but we're going to rule that it's fair use so it doesn't matter. That's right. So even if we say that it's copyrightable, which we're not saying, (laughs) even if it were copyrightable, it's fair use and that's all that matters. But what I was going to say, you know, Justice Breyer's uh, opinion. Yes. Yes. Praises to Judge Alsop for for his understanding of the critical issues at hand. (laughs) The court here, you know, you can you can scratch your head about whether the actual justices of the Supreme Court have a thoroughgoing understanding of API calls or not. But if you read the first part of this decision there, you know, it gives you faith in our court system and particularly the vehicle of the Supreme Court to really thoroughly understand issues whether the justices do or not, the clerks do, they get a lot of friends of the court briefs and they can write an opinion. You know, I, I really would love to hear from some of our programmer listeners if they read through the first part of this opinion, which is prefaced by through an API, a programmer can draw upon a vast library of pre-written code to carry out complex tasks. For laypersons, including judges, juries, and many others, some elaboration of this description may prove useful. And then it launches into pages of detail about the facts of this case. And and as I, you know, I'm not a programmer, I'm a lawyer, but I read through this and it rings really accurately to me. <laughs> so I'd be um, interested in how our, our geekier listeners re- react to it as well. I think the court, you know, in my humble opinion, did a good job here of trying to grasp the actual actual issues at hand. And the dissent from uh, Justices Alito and uh, Thomas really was over this copyright thing. They felt the court should have ruled on whether uh, you could copyright an API. Yes. I think, I think Breyer's opinion was this is as you said, in flux, we should we should uh, defer this as long as we can because this is a complicated thing and and things are changing. 
we can rule on this part of it and dispose of this matter without having making any assumption about copyright. Should it really be the le- the uh, a legislative thing? Should it be Congress that desert, decides? You think on the very much so. I mean, that's where this this confusion exists in the difference. You know, the actual descriptions of what's patentable and what's copyrightable that come up to us from the legislature. Right. So if we're in a gray area here, I think the court wisely decided, you know, it's not for us to make that call. And perhaps the legislature will want to do so, recognizing that we're in a gray area. Yeah. I, so I agree with Denise, you that Breyer's description of an API is actually pretty, pretty adept. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think he understood the issues uh, involved with with making an API unusable. Fair use is probably a good way to handle this until Congress does. Go ahead, Father Robert. Is this legal can-kicking? I mean, since they haven't really decided that, it's going to come up again. At some point, someone's going to try to make a play for saying, you can't use my API without paying me. Well, I think the fair use determination heads that off, right? I mean, if if somebody does what... Google did here, again, they used a small part, less than 1%, I think, of the overall uh, code that was at issue. Uh, so they, you know, you go through the fair use factors. Did, did you use, you know, the least amount that you could? And is it transformative? And, and really what this opinion gets to is, you know, what are the goals of the Copyright Law Act and what, you know, how are they supposed to serve innovation going forward are we consistent with that go- with those goals in this decision? And th- the court lays out how they feel that you know, it, much like um, there's copying involved in the existence of a search engine, but we all need search engines, and right. they serve a very practical and useful and innovative purpose for us. Uh, even though none of those search engine precedents were cited in this decision. It's a similar kind of reasoning where you need to look at all the factors and decide whether uh, fair use is necessary here to make, you know, the cogs of the machine turn. And and I think that's, although the court didn't put it that way, and I'm putting it less elegantly than the court put, uh, I feel like it's, it's a, there was a practical basis to this opinion. So what is so in at least in the in the usage uh, that I understand of fair use, um, there are some tests for fair use. Ultimately, it's up to a court to decide. It's a defense, not it's not a proactive thing. It's only a defense if somebody sues you. But right. But there are some tests that are commonly used. Do those also apply to this? What did the did the justices talk about? How this? Why this is fair use? Yeah, very much so. And and what what did they, what did they say? Um, how, the, the why is this fair use? The amount of copying was a tiny bit compared yeah. to uh, the actual work. They looked at um, the nature of the work. Is this is not like copying music or art or you know this is uh, copying as a means to an end, a very practical, functional end, um, and various other factors that went into the analysis. Yeah, the, the, because fair use is a legal issue, the court here got to look at, you know, it didn't have to it defer. It defines it. It defines Yes, it didn't have to defer yeah. to what had been done below and could go through and decide why it felt that the factors applied. Was, wasn't one of the factors, I read through this very briefly, but like, wasn't one of the factors like essentially 
the financial gain or profit of it like if you're using it for money making i guess because like android is is open source they kind of sidestep that well, Google, uh, yes. Google, as I mean, Oracle was quick to point out, made a lot of money on Android. Right. Sure, yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. where the nine billion came from. Right, uh, but but yes, it 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 was um, you know there are a whole host of factors that go into deciding whether something is fair use, and uh, certainly whether it's commercial or non-commercial is one of them. But again, they all sort of weigh against each other. And uh, what the court seemed to be most concerned with here is uh, there was a lot of discussion of the investment of time and resources and brain power of the people working with the APIs. And, and were, you know, was that all going to go for nothing? Um, shouldn't, shouldn't that be something that's meaningful? And uh, <laughs> The court certainly felt that it should. Did did the court consider damage to Oracle? Did they consider the you know Google made a lot of money off Oracle's back? Was that? I mean, I'm sure that's how Oracle feels about it. I, I'm sure it is. No, it, this this seemed to be more focused on the actual fair use analysis, and uh, given that there was no recoverable harm because fair use applied. Right you wouldn't get into the damages phase of anything. This was, it's kind of, the history of this case is hysterical because this is not the first time the, the Supreme Court has seen it. Um, it. It went up to the Supreme Court uh, over this fair use thing and they sent it back to the lower court saying, no, no, you have to decide this. Right. The, the lower court decided it was not fair use, that Oracle had won, at which point Google appeals once again to the Supreme Court. Now, this time, the, the Supreme Court can't send it back to the lower court because the lower court did, in fact, rule that it was not fair use. So they had to take this on. Um, and it, and this is why I was concerned. I felt like this is not looking good uh, for Google. I wasn't rooting for Google because they're Google or against Oracle because they're Oracle, although that's tempting. But I really felt like any determination that you could you could close off APIs would be really damaging uh, as the justices, by the way, or as Breyer pointed out, that 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 the whole industry relies on this kind of free sharing of information, um, right? Yeah, and and that's why I keep thinking, you know, again, it's it's a totally different body of law, but the courts that had to wrestle with copyright when it came to search engines had sort of similar conundrums in front of them. Yes, there's copying happen here, happening here. And there it was copying of, you know, things that were arguably creative, all the things that go into your search results, the art, the writing, everything else that you can search for on the internet. And that stuff is being copied so that you can find them. Yeah. Uh, and, and yet the courts that considered whether search engines should exist found yeah, they should. And I feel like that's what's uh, there's there's some of that kind of pragmatic approach going on here. People will be reading this opinion for a long time and I imagine it'll be taught in law schools. It's it's re I mean, just in my and again, I'm not a lawyer, but just in my reading of it, I found it fascinating. Uh, and I thought oh, the absolutely. reasoning was very intriguing. He uh, Breyer does take on uh, Thomas's dissent. And, say, and explains why he feels like uh, you know we didn't we we shouldn't necessarily rule on this uh, copyright issue. Um, it's really it's I think it's historic. 
Do you, mm-hmm. Would you agree that this is historic, Denise? I do. I, I, I and I'm, you know, I think we'd all kind of forgotten about it <laughs> and knew it was working. Its I way kept getting the reminded. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, you're right. It went on for so long. Yeah. Uh, almost as long as Twit's been around. We've been covering it Right, and it then from a the pandemic came along and delayed right. it further. Yeah. You know, so, one of the things that we talked about on Twyet was the fourth test for fair use. And that is, did you impinge upon the original owner's ability to exploit their work? And mm-hmm. as you said at the start, Leo, Java is the most used programming language in the world. So obviously it hasn't hurt them. No. It hasn't decreased the, the value of, of the thing that they own. So, I mean, I, I think that's, for me, looking down the decision, that's probably the most compelling part, which is if, if Google had come in and done this clean room copy of Java SE, and now no one was using Java from Oracle slash Sun, then yes, you could claim that you've destroyed something that was a value and therefore it's not fair use. But as it is right now, it's just increased the value of that material possession. <laughs> In fact, uh, Briar addresses that saying, this is all about a version of Android that is so old, only about 7% of devices still run it. It's right. basically obsolete. So you can't claim that there was any commercial harm at this point. Um it's it's really fascinating. And they did as you said Denise, they did say those four tests are not the only tests. It's not limited to those tests and the and the court uh felt very clearly that it was up to it to decide. It didn't have to it was not bound by those four tests at all. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, that's also will probably does this become um does this decision become important for fair use down oh, the road? Oh, important. Yeah. Yeah. This is the most recent fair use decision we have from the highest court in the land. And so, it's good news yes. for fair use. Good news for fair use. Uh, good, because I we use fair use all the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, but I mean, I say that with an asterisk. Every fair use case is distinct, right? That's, That's right. why you have to have That's right. juries figure out the facts and then the courts figure out whether the fair use factors apply. It, it's not like okay, we all get, you know, fair use is now the law of the land. No, it's case by case every single time. Yeah, so. it's, it's if you're interested, it's worth reading the uh, decisions online at supremecourt.gov. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is, what is it, 50, what did you say, 59 pages? 62 pages, 62 the pages. PDF. Wow. Yeah. Um, but it's, but it's, it's actually, I love reading this kind of stuff because it shows that these actually are, in, these are smart people really exercising their intellect and really trying to they're not it's not like congress Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's not it's not about compromising it's trying to find the truth and it's really great i just it's inspiring uh to read it did oracle has oracle responded in any way to this i'm sure they're disappointed but it's oh yeah they're they're appalled they're they're calling it a travesty (laughs) a travesty yeah. Uh, we gave so much money to President Trump. We got three justices <laughs> on the bench. By the way, Amy Comey Barrett was not uh, on the bench when this was first argued, so she was not allowed to vote. It was only the other eight justices uh, that voted. Right. Oracle is characterizing this as this is what you get when you have a monopoly. This is how Le- uh, Google's been able to drag this out for years and years and, you know, just keep that bone in its teeth. And so it's really kind of trying to cast this politically as Google couldn't. We're the little guy, Oracle's saying. Oh, please. I, I hope you all appreciate Oracle the humor Oracle's saying that. that with the way they've <laughs> conducted themselves over the last three decades is no. 
No, you don't yeah. get to do that. Sorry. They say Google stole Java. <laughs> and this is why regulatory authorities around the world and in the United States are examining Google's business practices. So here's what's happening. <laughs> okay, we lost to the Supreme Court. You go get them, FTC. Go get them. Go get them. Go. Right. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Uh, it was, it's a, a huge week. Uh, Supreme Court actually we did not stop with that. There were a number of other important decisions, uh, but that was clearly, uh, clearly the most important. I'm so glad you were here, Denise. It's still not completely clear, but I, but I, I, I feel like the good guys won. And I don't mean Google. I mean uh, the internet. Like I feel like it's a, it's a very well-reasoned decision, yeah. but you yeah, know, really I tend good. to, I, I should put all of my content uh, comments in the context of the fact that, that I, I am a fan of fair use and yeah. it being applied in, yeah. in proper circumstances. And I feel like it took 11 years for courts to you know struggle through these complicated issues and it's decide hard. these were proper circumstances yeah fair use has always been tricky and and yeah. difficult although i remember the eff put out a bumper sticker which i used to have i don't know where it is that says uh, fair use has fair a use posse. has a posse <laughs> you remember <laughs> and uh, the posse includes eight justices on the united states supreme court that's pretty good actually we able to take two off for the dissent so six that's mm-hmm. that's a majority that counts Yes. All right. And it's good to see that the court can function, you know, with eight justices. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in this case, and it will it could. do even better with 13. Or 100. <laughs> Why not? Why stop there? Let's have two justices for every state in the union. What do you think? Oh, no. What do you think? Uh, no, I'm kidding. I didn't say that. No. You didn't say no. that. Yeah, no. no. Six two majority is a, is a good, solid majority. That's a good way yeah. to win. Although you win by one vote, it's just as good. Our show today brought to you by Amazon Pharmacy. I actually very well remember PillPack because they were a sponsor on Twitter and I used them for a long time uh, for meds and for vitamins and so forth. Amazon bought PillPack and they're using the amazing PillPack technology for Amazon Pharmacy. And I got to say, it's fantastic. Amazon Pharmacy works with your doctor. The prescriptions are sent directly to Amazon Pharmacy. They fill them and deliver them right to your door. No need to leave the house. That's one less errand and a, you know, a lot safer for you. It'll save you a lot of time by delivering the medication to your door. You don't have to wait in line in a pharmacy. It's a lot easier because the doctor sends the prescription straight to Amazon Pharmacy. Amazon Pharmacy works with your doctor to make sure not only is the prescription accurate, but that you're getting exactly what you need. And that's great. Of course, there's a pharmacist online. You can always talk to a pharmacist at Amazon Pharmacy. Yes, you can use your insurance. It works with most insurance plans nationwide. But if you don't have insurance, you can also, as an Amazon Prime member, get dis- get uh, great discounts too. And you, of course, if you're a Prime member, you always get free two-day delivering. I have one of the things I really love about Amazon Pharmacy is you know the price ahead of time. How many times you've gone to the pharmacy, you give them your prescription, they fill it, you don't find out how much it's going to cost till you hit to the cash register. And I got to say, that's usually a little bit of sticker shock. With Amazon Pharmacy, you'll see the copay. You'll see the price, both with insurance and without insurance. And sometimes you can, you can make a better economic decision and say, you know what, I'm not going to use insurance on this. Uh, it's really good to know ahead of time what the price is. Of course, your medical information is protected and safe. Uh, They never share your personal health data outside the pharmacy. You don't have to worry about that. You're well protected. And there's always a pharmacist there. And because 
it's Amazon. There's a pharmacist there every hour of the day and night, 24-7. So you never, and it's kind of, you know, it's nice. You can talk to the pharmacist. It's, you know, somewhat anonymous. It's not, it's a very easy way to get the information you need about your medication. Don't, you never have to feel a little intimidated or afraid or embarrassed to talk to the pharmacist and get the information you need. Amazon Prime members, you'll save on prescription medication if you're not using insurance, and you'll get free two-day delivery. Find out more, amazon.com slash twitrx. That's amazon.com slash twitrx. Amazon Pharmacy, amazon.com slash twitrx. Uh, as I could, as I said, I, I used PillPack for years, and I really think it's a great service, and this is going to be even better. Amazon Pharmacy. Goodbye, lines. Hello, home delivery. There's some things that are just better since pandemic, you know, that we don't have to go back to the bad old days. Um, there's some, some benefits to the whole thing. <laughs> maybe not maybe not this i love gizmodo's article elon musk's remember the boring company you you're, you're in vegas sometimes uh, your family's in vegas right father robert my family's there yeah i remember the last time i was there which was ces 2020 they had a big dig with a boring hole to bore this tunnel under las vegas uh gizmodo's review uh is out media outlets in vegas were invited for a sneak peek of uh, Elon Musk's new form of public transit on Thursday. The headline says it all. Elon Musk's public transit in Las Vegas. Still, just humans driving cars slowly in a tunnel. <laughs> That's pretty much brutal. it. It's That's brutal. brutal. <laughs> At least it's a Tesla. But cost him $52 million. The loop, uh, it's 40 feet underground, one and a half miles long. I saw the dig, the beginning of it, which is the uh, Las Vegas Convention Center. That's Central Station. There's West Station and South Station. Those are above ground uh, stations. Um, you can see the videos. Uh, this is not like an artist's perspective or a cartoon. This is actually <laughs> what it looks like. <laughs> Uh, for the those not watching, most expensive carnival ride. <laughs> it's, it's not even fun like a carnival ride. What are they going twenty miles an hour? That's just like what the. Uh, I, I would. I thought there'd be at least like buses. These look like model uh, model X's or model Y's going under under there. I, I mean, it is the perfect track for autopilot, though. <laughs> there, there's no way for it to get into an accident. No pedestrians. No yeah, fire. Never engines. say never. <laughs> yeah, really, probably a way. Really. Uh, top speed. I, I sympathize. These are big problems. They take time to solve. All right. All right. <laughs> top speed, 35 miles an hour. Uh, that's faster than walking, right? Yeah, but when we were sold so, it, we were thinking, oh, we're going to be going in vacuum tubes at 600 miles an hour and go to from San Francisco to Los Angeles yeah. in 30 minutes. They mentioned 16 passenger vehicles. Um, not yet. Um they really just. I think, I think you just invented trains again. <laughs> <laughs> slow, slow trains. Sorry. On I mean, rubber yeah, tires. I mean, in, in, in full disclosure, like my, my wife works for a public transit agency. So I'm, I'm a fan of public transit. transit Me but, too. Yeah, absolutely. It, it seems like constantly a lot of these, uh, you know, tech things where they're kind of disrupting transit are just like, well, are you really disrupting it or are you just essentially trying to reinvent something that is already there and maybe doesn't need disruption so much as it needs more funding and support. 
at full capacity, according to uh, Mick Akers, 4,400 people per hour can be transported uh, because there's 62 uh, vehicles. You're just going to get a nice little ride in a car. <laughs> It's so, yeah. They're so slow. I'm okay. sorry. I just <laughs> okay. You know what would make this better? What if you had some of those? Um, what do they call those? The, the two wheeled scooters. Oh, segways. Yeah, yeah. Oh, segways. Yeah, just make that segways. Yeah. Make it a segway loop. Same speed. Let you drive. There might be more collisions, but there might be more fun. <laughs> what if you could, like rollerblade through it or something? I don't know. Like that sounds like skateboard. Yeah, we have especially uh, with that lighting. Yeah, we have. Yeah, uh, that seems. Awesome. I think you know this, Robert, because uh, remember we did a promo in San Francisco on Segways, yes, we did, which was yes. so much fun for the new screensavers. And then <laughs> and uh, Lisa I was the and only I one who crashed. Had yeah, right. <laughs> Lisa and I had so much fun. We bought two Segways. Uh, pretty much stopped using it when we found uh, our teenage boy uh, jousting on the Segway with his <laughs> friends. <laughs> Denise is laughing because she knows. I, uh, I, I have one of those. It's, it, <laughs> Not a Segway, a teenage they, boy. They found a piece of lumber with still had nails in it, by the way, and they're holding <laughs> it under their <laughs> arm and they're jousting. Let me ask you this. Do they also have e-bikes that are not locked up somewhere? They also have e-bikes. So they can joust with those. Yeah. Uh, I was going to say, Steve, Steve Wozniak used to do Segway polo. I yeah, think, I've played sport. Segway polo with, uh, with, with Woz. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. He loved his uh, those, those Segways. Yeah, the, you know Wait, what? you got an off-road one. No, no. Uh, I did for the promo. It had big, fat tires. That's the same one that the former president of Segway drove off a cliff to his death. That's right. So That's right. I decided not to buy those, <laughs> not to be tempted to go off-road. Uh, we just have the road, the road Segways. You know, I'm, I, I get cynical about this just because um, I used to love trains in the United States. I have traveled coast-to-coast on trains, and I, I had a love affair trains. with them. And then I got here. And I rode a high speed and I was thinking, oh, my God, no, we, we have no idea what trains are. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, every other country I've ever been to, the trains are it, better. It kills me. It kills me. It's I, close. It would be so nice to have. Well, I'm with your wife, Dan. Mass transit, uh, that's what we need. It's the solution. We got to get it. Um, Dr. Mom's saying, Leo, I told you, men in their 20s are idiots. Yeah, you know what? Okay, so Michael was the one jousting on the segways. Now I remember I gave Henry, my my uh, my older son, he's 25, hoverboard. a hoverboard, yeah. and he got on Tosh 2.0 because they were hoverboard jousting. Uh-huh. Oh, God. So maybe- I, I, I heard about that from Tosh 2.0 before I heard about it from you. I was watching late night. I was like, that's Henry. What the <laughs> It's so embarrassing. Uh, 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 you remember then in the video, there was an, a quick elbow shot that just took the guy out yep. completely. Yep. I said, Henry, please. He also, there's another thing, by the way, I shouldn't, poor Henry, I shouldn't mention all this, but I can't help it. There's another thing, uh, I guess it's TikTok inspired, where you jump off a roof and land on your back on a table and it breaks, it breaks your fall. Have you ever seen that? Why? Don't do it, kids. No. Why? Why? That's my question. That's worse than planking. I asked him, why, Henry? Because he sent me the video of him. He's jumping off a roof. He flips around. He lands. He says, oh, it's safe, Dad. And the girls love it. 
Okay, when in 20 years when he has back problems, yeah, play no back kidding. that clip. Mm-hmm. No kidding. Mm-hmm. Ay, 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 ay. Anyway, I'm sorry. It's not the Henry show. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Kara Swisher uh, got a big interview with Tim Cook. Although, and you wrote up about it, uh, Dan, and so that means you listened to it. I uh, long ago learned never interview CEOs because they're not <laughs> stupid. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you hope for you hope for a stupid CEO or at least an indiscreet one, but they're always well trained. Tim Cook is not going to say anything. No, he's the man is very regimented. I was, you know, uh, Jason Snell, my colleague at Six Colors, saying talking about uh, interviewing Steve Jobs once for five minutes. He's like, was, he didn't want to be there. I didn't really want to be there. No. It was kind of an unpleasant no. experience. You look for actually people uh, like Waz because Waz, I think probably because of a brain injury, tells the truth. And so <laughs> Waz is great. He'll say, and then you always get juicy quotes out of Waz, but you're never going to get a juicy quote. No, out of no. Tim, Tim, Cook. Tim Cook is very, he, he's, you can tell from his de- demeanor that he plays things very close to the vest. He's very deliberate in the way that he speaks. Any revelations? I love when he took over. Yeah, there are a few things in there that I think are interesting that point to stuff. Uh, you got to kind of read between the lines here. He talked a bit about AR, which he's been talking about for a long time now. Um, and he made some kind of strange comments about, uh, like, wouldn't this show be, wouldn't it be greater? We're having this conversation. Wouldn't it be better if we could just have, like, graphs? And you're like, no. wow, Tim, I know you really love graphs, no. but I don't think that really is better no. for most people. <laughs> but but the way he talks about it is much more concrete in terms of the way he's thinking about it. In yeah. the past, it's always been, it's an area of interest, right? And we've right. seen the stuff they've done on iOS. This feels like, I know there is something coming and it's, you know, we are going to be doing something around this and I'm trying to very much talk around it. And so you can kind of see in the sort of the negative space, right? Like in what he's not saying that like there is something there that he is avoiding talking about. So I think it is interesting to see that because, you know, they'll never talk about future products, say we're working on this or whatever. But you you get a very different uh, feeling from that versus, say, uh, she asked him about car stuff as well. And obviously there's been a lot written uh, talking about Apple being interested in cars. And he, you know, Cook is willing to say like, oh, you know, there's a bunch of stuff. You know, we look at a lot of things and that feels right much more vague where it's something that's like, we know they're working on something, but I think even they don't know what that is or even if it will become a product right. as opposed to the AR stuff, which feels much more like this is something that's coming probably sooner rather than later. I always liken it to Kremlinology. You can tell if you've been following it very closely, you can see the progress in what he said, what he's willing to say. So if you have a deep knowledge of it, you can kind of infer some stuff from it. So it sounds like we're getting closer to AR or some sort of mixed reality headset from Apple. That's what the rumors have been saying as well. Sure, right. And I think it's hard for him to avoid because he knows how much attention Apple gets, right? Like Bloomberg and all these other places writing, plus all the leakers, all this stuff. Like, it's hard to talk around that when there's so much information that's out there, even if you're missing huge swaths of it. Here's one thing Apple probably wishes we didn't know about, but this is always the risk uh, uh, with litigation, and Denise, you correct me if I'm wrong, but the both the opposite the opposition gets to depose your executives, and it gets to do discovery and see emails, and it's almost inevitable when you get these big fights that stuff is revealed that maybe a company wishes weren't revealed. Very famously in the Apple Google battle, uh, a lot of stuff came out. Well, Apple's in a battle with Epic right now over the App Store and over Epic Games and Fortnite. And uh, well, a little bit of a smoking gun here. A deposition 
of Eddie Q, Senior Vice President of Internet Software and Services. Q says in 2013, there were plans to make iMessages for Android where it would have had, quote, cross-compatibility with the iOS platform so that users of both platforms would have been able to exchange messages with one another seamlessly. Hallelujah! Uh, he didn't say why it didn't happen. Craig Federighi, though, <laughs> during a deposition, Senior Vice President of Software Engineering, acknowledged that putting iMessage on Android would simply serve to remove an obstacle to iPhone families giving their kids Android phones, cheaper Android phones. Uh-oh. And then an, an email from Phil Schiller really seals it. Um, he said, the number one, quoting Phil Schiller's email, the number one most difficult reason to leave the Apple universe is iMessage. The number one thing we have to lock people in, in other words. iMessage amounts to serious lock-in. And Schiller said that, quote, Moving iMessage to Android will hurt us more than help us. This, illus this email illustrates why. So, all right, we thought it. We knew it. It's not a big surprise, but well, now we know there's a yeah, real it's reason. Their, it's, it's their product. I mean, why would they do that? Why would they make a, a feature that works interoperably with their biggest competitor? I, I, I find this story like a little well, bit of... put iTunes uh, on Windows... Yeah, but it's a little dog bites man. I mean, moving iTunes to Windows was nice because it let them expand their iPod sales. Steve Jobs fought it tooth and nail, but you're right. right. But it, he it ended up benefiting them. It benefited. Yeah, and whereas this, there's no benefit for Apple for doing that. It's nice. Like, people will like it, but it's not something that will sell more products. And I, you know, as a company that's looking at its bottom line... I just can't fathom why they would really consider doing it unless they felt like it's we're going to get more people switching from Android because they will be so convinced about how good iMessage is rather than people who are going like, oh, well, if I don't have to worry about losing iMessage, I might as well buy a cheaper phone. Like, I think the risks vastly outweigh the passable benefits for them on that one. Now, I, I agree with you in that it makes business sense for them not to do that. Any other company? Absolutely. But for me, the issue is that Apple has always said that these measures are more about about curating the experience than anything else. And now that you've got emails from the executives saying basically, uh, yeah, we could do it, but uh, we'd rather them stay on iPhone, that that doesn't strike the right chord. That's that's not the Apple that they're trying to portray. That's the Apple as just another business. It's the truth. Right. It's, I think they would the also truth, argue yeah. that we're curating the experience, and the experience is iOS. Like, that's the best experience. <laughs> Why? You know, Steve Jobs' famous quote about iTunes on Windows was it's like giving a, a glass of ice water to someone in hell. And I think <laughs> they would probably say the same thing about iMessage on Android. Sure, you got iMessage, but you're still using Android. It's germane, though, to the Epic uh, trial, though, because don't forget, there is no way to use a different messenger on iOS as your default. You can't you're locked into iMessages on, on iOS. So if you wanted to all as a family use WhatsApp so that your poor Android cousins could still message with you, interoperate with you, you wouldn't have a positive experience on Apple because you, you wouldn't can, get your you text You can do messages. it, right. Yeah. You're right. It's, not, a, it's yeah. not the default. But like, I don't know, I've used a bunch of different messaging apps on my phone, including WhatsApp and Signal and Telegram and all this stuff. And yeah, it's it's not the best experience, but it's not a bad experience, and I don't know that it's necessarily that much worse than than using the same sort of thing on Android either. I mean, the real problem is, frankly, that SMS. Is a well, that's a terrible mess. thing that hasn't gone away and has ended up being the lowest common denominator. Well, that's why people like Apple Messages, right? 
because sure. it is yeah. an SMS client that it's that is much much better than an SMS client, right. and it gives you a, a, a data experience that's ten times better. It lets you send text messages if you have to, but you but you can use a positive. And you know, on I have to say on Android you can use third party apps as your default text messenger. Google would prefer you used. Android messages, but you can use it. This is why I think Google does messaging so much better because I just use uh, Hangouts, or no, Voice, then Hangouts, then Allo, then Duo, then Hangouts again, then Voice. And what are we really? know what we're at now. I am so pissed right. off because we're on vacation, first vacation in a year and a half, not far away. We just went to Napa for a couple of days. Uh, don't worry, socially distanced, masked, everything. But I, my daughter's trying to communicate with me. She's on Android. And I've been using Hangouts on my Pixel phone. And Google picked last week to turn yep. the flip the switch to make Hangouts just completely stop working. It no longer sends or receives messages. And I have no, I don't have a Pixel phone with me. I was using hang, Hangouts on my iPhone so that I could get messages that were sent to my Pixel number. That's how my daughter messages me. And so we couldn't communicate uh, via text messaging. I had to call her like a savage, like a kid. <laughs> <laughs> but it that just, happened to me mid-thread. It, I, it, yes. I was literally going back and forth, and then suddenly I lost the SMS option. I was like, wait, what? It's gone. I, I, uh, and it didn't explain it. No, and I'm a Google Fi user, so I we were we were grandfathered in a little longer. It's gone. So I this week made a you know quest to find a replacement. Had I had iMessages, I would have gladly used that on Android. Um, I, I looked at Signal because I have Signal on iOS, because I have Signal on Android, but it's annoying because it uses your phone number and you can only mm -hmm. have it on one other device at a time. It mm -hmm. deactivates any. So I finally found something uh, called Pulse, which is a good tech. You can use it as your fault messenger on your, on your Android device. You can use it on the desktop. I can use it on Linux, which is nice. And, and it, but there's <laughs> So Luke Klinker, the author, says... I have an uh, iOS app, but Apple won't approve it <laughs> because they say uh, this is an app that requires an Android phone and they're not going to approve it. And there you go again with the lock in because that would be a perfect solution for me. So I have to use a progressive web app, which does not work very well on iOS to try to use Pulse. There is really nothing to replace Hangouts, um, which is a little frustrating. Uh, and, and Apple, if, if you would make message, I guess here's the point, Dan. Yes, obviously, Apple's acting in their own interest. But from day one, I remember, you know, pressing my nose against the glass at the, at the computer store, looking at Elisa saying, oh, if only I had $10,000. And then the <laughs> Mac came out and I was pressing my nose against the window at Macy's. And fortunately, I had a Macy's card and I was able to charge it and paid for that for years but i got a an imac in 1984 and from day one apple has been for the rest of us think different they've pushed this thing that we care about the users we we want to give you the best experience if you really cared about the users apple you would consider people who have android phones and not make them green bubbles but the truth I mean, is, is that the big issue though right? the green why, bubble why? is that really all it is yeah. a color thing the badge of shame it's part of it. <laughs> it's part of it. it. Is, I mean, it's part of it, right? Like there, there are certainly additional features that you get in in iMessage when you talk between iOS or Apple devices. I think, I think your point is well, well taken, Leo. But I think the challenge there is like, do they have to care about everybody who are not no, their customers? I mean, I, it's I just understand the scales have to. fallen from my eyes. I thought Apple was. 
<laughs> I I thought Apple loved me as much as I loved them, and now I know they're just another gosh darn for profit company. So I have to look up who Apple's lawyers so are in this case with Epic. I haven't done that yet, but it's probably it's, Dan Boys. I don't know. No, no, that would be that would be um, David Boys. David Boys. That yeah. would be like up at a Supreme Court level, right? Yeah, we're we're down here slogging away in the trial court, taking depositions, and what <laughs> happens when that happens is. The lead lawyer on the case hardly ever wants to sit in on a deposition. It's Ugh, just not a good use of so their boring. time. The junior lawyers are Gibson, trained. Gibson, Dunn, and Crutcher. It's Gibson, Dunn. Okay, so um, great big, huge, multinational Epic is represented by Cravath, Swain, and Moore. The same. Huge okay. multinational <laughs> law firm. So what happens is the partners at these law firms charge... I mean, it's upwards of $1,000 an hour. It could oh be pushing $2,000 an hour oh these days. Oh, my God. Yeah. I haven't researched it lately, but it's definitely 1000 plus an hour at those two firms. So just from a cost efficiency standpoint, you don't want the lead lawyer in there. And what winds up happening is someone who who's not necessarily that seasoned might be sitting in on a deposition and the witness has been prepped and the lawyer is just there to sort of like listen for questions and object when they should object. But mostly it's a fishing expedition by the party taking the deposition. And this shouldn't have happened. He shouldn't have been able to give those answers because... Apple should have, uh, Apple's attorney should have said. Apple's attorney, uh, attorney should have interceded. But I'm, I'm guessing that the lead lawyer was far from that Some intern room. was in there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, they got the emails too. So uh, yeah. is that going to hurt them though, you think? Does that, uh, is that evidence of a monopolistic practice? Well, I, I, I think there's much more that goes into that analysis. Um, you, you know, your market share really is, is right. huge and, and does... Apple, but see, Apple have says a it's monopoly not huge. on messaging. I don't Look think so. You could buy an Android phone. It's not mm-hmm. huge. We don't even have again, uh, half the market. Right. And messaging is not the, the main issue in the Epic case. It's, right. it's the App Store. But they do want to lock you in. Yeah. They do want to lock you uh, in. But every, I mean, who wouldn't? What company wouldn't, given the option, right? If they can keep their people, know. And, you know, keep their customers know. and prevent them from going elsewhere. I'm just a fool. I thought these companies liked me. Just Hell personally, real. anecdotally, I can tell you as a, a family who uses iPhones, the bigger, much bigger lock-in for me is uh, find my iPhone. You know, you can find everybody yeah. really? where they are. You, know you have that doing. on Android too, though. You just don't know it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, Dan, you had an interesting story. Find my is, I guess, uh, not going to be restricted to Apple anymore. Oh. Oh, did he lock up? Dan has no comment. He's been advised by his lawyer not to say <laughs> someone. Someone has used "find my Dan." And, find uh, my Dan. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Leo, I, I was just wondering. Uh, one of the ways that Apple is defending its practices right now is to say that okay. they can charge developers thirty percent because. All that money goes into maintaining the app store, and they don't get a lot of money from the far majority of the apps that are hosted on the app store. No, just 30%. Does that remind you of a business model of an industry from, say, the 90s that exploded for doing that exact sort of reasoning? And that's basically the music industry. Oh, the same idea that yeah. we charge so much money because most of the acts we take in don't make money, and so therefore this right. is really the fair thing well, to do. Well, even worse than it that, doesn't work. we don't want to sell singles because most albums right. only have a couple of good songs on it. 
Uh, so, so you'll never buy the album if we just sold you the good songs. So, and that really Which broke what, down. And you know who broke that down? Steve Jobs, who said, "No, you're yep. going to sell 99 yep. cent singles and like it," and that destroyed the album. I, I understand the arguments that this is good business, but. The problem is if you're burning through all that goodwill, the first time someone comes in to disrupt your market like Jobs did, then it, it's gone. It gets destroyed almost immediately. And there's no way to hold on to it except to start suing people. Yeah. I've used Find My Dan Morin and we found him. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God. I was getting, getting worried. So Apple uh, is, even though AirTags is not out, maybe this is their response. Yeah. Oh, we, we, we never meant to make AirTags. We'll just let everybody else make it. They're allowing third parties to use the Find My Network now. That's a big right, deal. Right. And they've clearly partnered with a few of these companies to sort of get them in the front door um, because there's a handful of things that are right out of the gate. I think one from Belkin. I think some of the e-bikes was a Van Moof, I think, um, which have this sort of Find my e-bike. That would be good. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. and so they're building a whole framework for it. And I think, I think this is a clever move because it does raise the question of, well, does Apple want to play in the AirTag space or do they just decide, you know what, this isn't a, a thing that we need to build a product for right. but we can leverage third parties who want to use essentially this entirely huge network of apple devices that can be used to find things and then it also doesn't hurt them in terms of this whole ongoing antitrust stuff it makes them look right good, right it's good Although, pr it's them saying we want to work with all these other people one of the companies that's been bitching about apple especially about find my is tile yeah. Because yeah. they say Apple, you know, presuming that Apple's going to release AirTags, Apple will have an undeniable advantage. Uh, is Tile part of this third party? Yeah. Tile's not currently part oh, of this, no. And I'm surprised. I, I, uh, how interesting. <laughs> um, I will be interested to see how that changes because at a certain point, Tile will be sh shooting itself in the foot if it doesn't build in support for this system, right? Because if all its competitors are going to use it and can leverage this, oh, hey, you know, Tile's great. You can use it to find other uh, people's probably like who have lost their keys and use Tile. But there's still a fraction of Tile devices that there are to Apple devices. Right. So if every other competitor to Tile is like leveraging Apple's network to be able to find stuff and Tile is not. Tile's going to be at a disadvantage. So that's a, yeah. that's that's really to your point of Apple. In a defensive move against the uh, antitrust uh, accusation, says, "Well, no, look how open we are. We're even letting, right. especially if our they then don't make this. their own first party solution either, right? And they said we're just working with third parties. Like right. that looks great for them. So who knows? Yeah. Apple dropped its commission fee for smaller apps. Right? They did to it's less fifteen percent if you yeah. make less than a million. By the way, Google has now done the same thing." Mm -hmm. Um, also for companies that make less than a million, which tells you something that that not like the vast bulk of revenue Apple and Google make in the App Store is in companies that make more than a million dollars. Right, <laughs> like, but Apple, one of the arguments against Epic is that the vast majority of apps uh, are free and thus pay Apple nothing. Yeah, so which it's, is a, a good it's point. a small percentage of the total ecosystem that's actually making. Although. I would point out that, in fact, Epic's Fortnite is free, and Epic mm -hmm. hates it that uh, the billions of dollars in revenue they make, they have to give 30% cut to Apple on, on mm -hmm. you know, costumes and dance moves and all the other stuff. <laughs> I mean, this is the problem. This actually is a big problem that Apple is facing in the, uh, in the game segment. It's free to play games or free to download, not free to play in the long run. You end up spending right. a lot of money on those games as you as everybody knows. Yeah. Apple's actually yeah. responded to that. This week, they almost doubled 
the arcade games to 180 games, many of them uh, classics that were not free to play, or they were free to play, but they had a lot of additional uh, downloadable content. And it really reminds you how nice it is to play a game that doesn't beg you for money every five minutes. There's some yeah. good stuff on the new Apple Arcade. But how will I get yep. the most recent dance moves or the newest cat <laughs> when I play an arcade game? Yep. Have to invent them yourself. <laughs> I think you just go to TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Um, the biggest Apple story uh, that will probably stay the biggest story for some time to come. Well, Apple Epic's pretty big. But Apple's privacy, new privacy policy, 14.5 is due According to Tim Cook, any day now, right? What did he say? He said in the next couple of weeks? A few, few weeks, few yeah. Weeks? So everyone was kind of wondering if it was pegged to some sort of product hardware release, but it's unclear now. A so new iPad sometime would in the next be a logical time to release 14.5. which will be new iPad OS, new iOS, and new TV OS, will now officially require apps to ask the user to track them uh, when you install the app for targeted advertising purposes, this is that new app tracking transparency. And this is uh, Wall Street Journal is joining. <laughs> Notice the Wall Street Journal, which hates Apple and Google because, well, they're a newspaper and Apple and Google are the future. But uh, they, they keep ragging on Apple about this. And now there's a series of articles in the Wall Street Journal about how even small businesses are going to be de destroyed by this, um, which, frankly, is bull hockey. Um, no small business is, it cares about tracking users so they can uh, be more effective in their ad campaigns. Um, Apple is going to turn the flip this switch. Uh, Facebook is the real company that's going to hate it. They're the ones who took yep. out the full-page ad in the Wall Street Journal. Right, and they're using small businesses kind of as a stocking yeah. horse to say, "These are no, it's not us. It's not this. It's we'll not be, us. We'll be fine. Well, it's the yeah. small businesses. It's a little yeah. the, well, what it is is yeah. small businesses who buy ads on Facebook and, Facebook. and use Facebook's yep. uh, knowledge about you to buy the ad, ads aimed at you. Um, I don't I, honestly they, they, have that, a big problem with ad tracking. Um, I have much more problem with the, you know, the ads taking over pages and slowing down downloads and being security hazards. Frankly, an ad that is uh, about something I'm interested in, to me, is preferable. But the, there's also the argument here, and I, I don't quite understand the logic in some ways of the pushback on the small businesses, because your, your argument there is like, all right, small businesses will get in trouble. So what should we do? We should leave things the way they are right now and your data privacy doesn't matter? Like, is that the alternative? Is your pitching is everything's fine? Because clearly, well, you know, there is a strong isn't. argument for data privacy. I'm going to be the contrarian and say, okay, look, I understand privacy and everybody deserves to choose. But, I mean, I'm sick and tired of clicking the button accepting cookies on every goddamn website I go to. That's not improving anybody's experience in any appreciable way. The paranoia over tracking is way out of control, I think. And I think ads that are t tailored to your interests is not a bad thing. What? Well, so let, I'll let you away. explain to me, Dan, how horrible yeah. is ad tracking? Why should I be so <laughs> it's concerned? It's just the worst. <laughs> I think, no, 
I, I think the, the key thing to remember here is is tracking and personalization isn't going away. What's actually changing is just how granular it gets. And if you, indeed, if you're you know, if you want the ads that are specifically targeted to you, Leo Laporte, like what, what does Leo want? Then you might be losing out here a little bit. That said, all Apple's doing is putting up a box that says, are you okay? You get with the choice. Yeah, you? choice is you good. Choice. You're right. You're yeah. right. You're right. They're not, they're not banning it. They're just making Although, you let you know it's there. It's estimated that about 70 to 80% of uh, Apple users, when posed with this question, will say, oh, absolutely. No tracking. Turn it off. Sure. That's what, that's right. what everybody's they, afraid of. And there are still facilities for doing tracking and personalization. It's just not as fine grained, right? Like it's still Apple more about does like, it, by the way. Right. Apple sure. and, has, and they're allowing frameworks for this. Yeah. Apple does a lot of ad tracking. So yeah. But a, I mean, th- what they do is find ways to anonymize it or. They're doing uh, something you know, very similar to Google it. Flock, which is they're right. segmenting exactly. you. They're putting you in a segment. Right. And, and even Google realizes this ship is sailing, right? That's the reason they came out with right. that whole announcement that we're changing the way we do this. this well, is, is Flock this is okay? Over. I think there's still some concerns about it. I don't know all the fine details of it. And I've seen some people be critical of it. But I think it. Honestly, it's probably still a lot better than what we have now. Uh, I'm not convinced that it's, you know, fixes all the potential problems with with data privacy. And and certainly a lot of their stuff is first party and nobody knows more about you than Google, I would argue, even Facebook. Um, So I think there's there's it's an improvement, but it's not a it's not a cure all. And just to complete that circle, not to make references to hypothetical works of fiction, but um, the. don't forget that Apple and Google still have the data. They're they're governing what other people do with the data. It's we also have to wonder and worry and handering about how much we trust Apple and Google and the, the rest of these big companies who are also, by the way, working on AI. So, you know what what does AI eat data? I, I mean, look, look. Um, I'm 100% against tracking. 100%, and I'm convinced of. The, not the evils of tracking, but the, the evils of the way that tracking data has been used. How is but it? Ultimately give me what, an example of how it's been used in a... In okay, a, so this is actually, this is a, a thing that I've actually done here in my official capacity. I've had to explain what tr- how tracking could be misused. Take the, the information from one single user. If I can track your browsing, just your browsing, let's forget everything else I might be able to track on your device. I can find the sites that you go to. I can find the items that you've been looking at. I can find the services that you use. From that profile, even if I don't know who you are, I can come within a couple of points of accuracy of knowing what your political uh, leanings are, what your demographic stats are, how much you earn per year, what your education is. And I can custom tailor a way to convince you to be angry at something. Right. That's, that was the whole that's, Cambridge Analytica thing, which, by the way, as it turned out, was completely ineffective and was a scam, not on us, but on the people who paid Cambridge Analytica who for paid, the data. That's right. <laughs> now, but the fact that they couldn't do it properly doesn't mean that it can't be done. I mean, we've done it done in very small batches. There is something there that if you don't take care can be horribly misused. Well, okay, so who has the data? Not the advertiser in this case. The the advertiser goes to Facebook or Google and says, I want to buy a political ad uh, uh, with these demographic information. They don't get information about who that person is. They just know that their ad's going to go to those people, right? But Facebook and Correct. Google know that. Correct. Okay. So, uh, so are and, you and worried actually, that Facebook and Google are going to do, what are they going to do with that besides selling ads against it? 
So I can go to Facebook and I can create a custom campaign and say, look, I would like to approach these types of people and I want to pitch an ad that specifically calls out the inefficiencies of the government and why are we t- wasting tax dollars? Right. Because I know that those people are the ones It'll who be are most ground. likely upset yeah. Yeah. by that. And now I can direct that anger and I can do that for 50 or 60 different subgroups, all directing them towards a common hate, even though they have different things that they hate. So is it anti-democratic? It, it can be, but, but more or than maybe, that, it's maybe. manipulative. It's horribly manipulative. Is it? I mean, it's just, oh, yeah. it's just telling something people they want to hear. That happens all the well, time. I mean, and Facebook, you got to keep in mind, too, is like that's that's works for them, right? Because their whole thing is engagement. They want more people on their site. They want more eyeballs. They want more clicks. That all drives stuff, drives those ads, right? It's sort of a circular, you know, monster eating itself, <laughs> like where it's like, oh, the more you come here and the more you get angry, which means the more you come here, the more you'll see those ads that will make you angry, that will keep you coming back. Right. And as a democracy, do we want people getting their information and making their political decisions based on advertising? Yeah. Rather than well, I don't want policy carefully be decided by outrage. journalistically that's investigated. That's, that's up to people stories. to make that decision. I, I think that uh, are you yeah. would you like to ban political advertising? Is that what you're proposing? I certainly have controls on it. No. Yeah, controls are not a bad thing. Controls in what degree? That you can't advertise to somebody who might be interested in your message? If I could say, um, look, I want people who are uh, in favor of uh, gun control. I'd like to buy ads for those people. You would ban that? I don't know that I would ban that specifically, but I think I think there are have to be ways in terms of things being conducted in a fair and reasonable manner. And it doesn't necessarily come down to targeting just what people want to hear. But also, I think, as the father was pointing out, like, what is the message that you're actually selling? It's yeah. one thing to be saying, I'm in gun control, or I'm in favor of the Second Amendment. But if you're twisting things specifically to appeal to people, which obviously is what politics does to a certain amount, I think there are ways to sort of combat that, especially when it comes to disinformation. Right. I mean, I'm, look, I think it's exactly right that Apple can offer you a choice i don't have a problem with that at all yeah. uh i think we should have a choice in all of these regards if somebody doesn't want to be tracked they should be able to say i don't want to be tracked but uh which by, by the way right now is difficult but i i i also worry very much about the knee-jerk reaction this pro-privacy knee-jerk reaction like well it's all bad because it's it's all the harms i've been told are speculatives kind of well it could it might but none of them are actually active. And the thing that people bring up a lot, Cambridge Analytica, turned out they didn't have any of those capabilities. It was do, snake do oil. Until it, do you wait until the harm has happened, though? Is that the question? Well, isn't like, that is what it, you normally do? Uh, isn't that, I mean, Denise, you're Some an attorney. Isn't it better is to wait, so great. <laughs> wait for the harm to happen before you patch security vulnerabilities until they've been exploited? I don't no. know. I mean, yeah, I think the harm has happened. You know, we, we've got. Uh, U.S. government agencies confirming that that the United States electorate has been manipulated in a couple of different presidential elections now. Um, you know this this matters, and do we want to wait for more harm to happen? I don't think so. Yeah. I, I think we're dealing with something quantitatively different than than the way political advertising was done in the past. Yeah, because they've gotten very good at it. Yeah. Well, let's not forget there was an an insurrection 
Let's yeah. not forget there was an armed insurrection well, a couple months ago that yeah. was in part stoked by these kinds of things. In part, can't blame it, but it didn't. It didn't help, and it certainly was I, used. Like the indication seemed to be it was ad tracking equals January sixth. No, but it's there's a, there is a slippery slope there as well too. I mean, I, no, I don't disagree ad- with you, Leo, that there's there's probably an over compensation, and I would say in large part that's because the controls have been so lax. I think the the pendulum has swung back so far in the other direction because there there was right. basically nothing. It was the wild west. I would I think we can agree, uh, and any sensible person can agree that it should be up to any individual mm-hmm. to the degree to which they are tracked. So if somebody really you know wants to protect their privacy, there should be means and, and ways to do that. But I also worry that privacy advocates are going, uh, and I can see it happening, are preventing a lot of useful technologies from developing. Because the companies developing them saying, oh, well, we'll get, we'll get hit on privacy on this one, things like face recognition. And, and uh, I, I think it should be a choice. I agree. I don't think that the choice should be made for all of us that these technologies shall not happen because they might re- impinge on privacy. I don't, I, that bothers me. I Isn't feel- it kind of sad that that if you pop up a message to people on their iPhones, hey, if you want to, do you want to be tracked? Most yeah. are going to say no. Most say and right no. now they don't have that right. kind of cho- meaningful choice at all. But on the other hand, most say no, be- but not because they really understand what the issues are. Um, most people say, I don't want uh, t- targeted advertising. But honestly, I don't, I think you do want target, to be honest, I think you do want targeted advertising. One thing well, we If I start doing diaper true. ads on Twit. Uh, it happened when we started doing Manscaped ads. People said, I don't want to hear about below-the-belt grooming. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you want targeted ads. But, but, Leo, this group, this group, this panel and this audience are, are not the target for this discussion because most of us can make an informed decision That's about true. whether or not we care about tracking. That's the true. vast majority of the world, all of the people that I educate here, they have no idea that this is even a thing. Yeah. So they don't. They don't even. So know. they can't. So this yeah, is the, This is what decision. terrifies Facebook and Google is Apple's going to let them know, and these right. privacy labels even worse, right? No. I like what Apple's doing to try and and mollify the advertisers and say, "Hey, we're going to give you some tools. You can see, you know, what sort of positive reaction you've gotten to your ad without having to know exactly what user did what." Right. Um, that that seems useful. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't think the sky is going to fall as a result of this either. No. I mean, I think there's been a lot of things that that people sort of uh, have, you know, treated like it's apocalyptic. And I, I'm not sure that this is going to necessarily put anybody out of business. I think it's going to change the way that that ads are used. But I honestly, I also wonder this is sort of the flip side too is like, you know, uh, I think Father made a great point about like it's not necessarily for us because like when was the last time you actually clicked on an ad? Like, I have, I have a when's, lot of cases where I have them off, right? I have honestly, ad blockers or something. When's the last it, time it's you It's so s- not for us that not only do I, do I, you know, every time I get those cookie policy things, I don't just click OK. I go in and customize them. So <laughs> I love ads. I love them because I, I, uh, fu- I, fu- I fuzz all of my, uh, my tracking <laughs> You get the weirdest ads ever. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so I get ads in Japanese and in Spanish and for eateries I would never. Isn't that more to, annoying so? than seeing an ad for something you'd actually be interested in, though? No, because I'm a bit of an asshole, and I, I enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The truth comes out. All right, let's take a little break. Father Robert Balasser. Hey, he said it. He's a bit of a, you know. Uh, Dan, <laughs> no, he's a great guy. Dan Morin, sixcolors.com. 
science fiction author. What's your latest book? Uh, it's The Aleph Extraction, uh, which came out last May. Exciting. Are you working on a sequel? I'm working on something. I can't say too much about it, but I'm definitely working on stuff. I, you know, when I will, I will shout it, but right now I can't say. Exciting. Well, come back and tell us when, it, when it's okay. Denise Howell, attorney at law, denisehowell.info. What are you working on these days? I'm representing clients in their privacy compliance a lot of times. Oh, I bet. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I'm uh, still taking care of my kid and uh, just trying to get life back to normal these days. Enjoying your, uh, I enjoy your regular wardrobe pics on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, I, on the side, I like to advocate for reducing the textile waste problem globally. So. Maybe you don't know this, but Denise is able to go to a Goodwill or a, a thrift store and put together amazing, so cool outfits. And she posts them. What's it's it, Denise Howell, what's your Instagram? It's D Howell. D Howell. Yep. Highly recommended. Well, thank you. Our show today brought to you by Podium, another thing I highly recommend. I've experienced, you probably have experienced Podium. If you leave, a, let's say, a dentist's office and you get a text saying, hey, don't forget to give us a review or how, how did you like our service? Or if you have any issues, here's the number to text us back at. That's Podium. If you've ever wanted to contact a local business to find out more and wish you could have just texted them instead of calling them, don't you prefer to text? I do. Uh, that's Podium. In the 90s, you know, your business needed an email address. By the 2000s, you had to have a website. By 2010, you had to have that Twitter account and Facebook presence. By 2021, your business needs to be texting. And that's why you need Podium. I'll give you a stat that'll tell you something. Average email, about 20% open rate. One in five. 98% of text messages will be opened. Who doesn't open text messages? Everybody does. It's a great way to stay in touch, to serve your clients, your customers. Podium is the messaging platform that will power your business. Very easy for you to set up. You can be onboarded in, in less than a day. And Podium has a great team in place to answer your questions, to walk you through everything. Businesses use Podium for a variety of things. You can ask for reviews on your favorite review sites. By the way, that really works because the customer was just in the store or just in the practice. You can collect payments. Podium allows payments. It's a great way. Customers love that, especially nowadays when they don't want to go in the store, give you money and come out with a product. They can do it all with Podium. You can communicate with customers. You can capture leads. And here's the thing. Your staff will like it because it's all from a single inbox. Podium helps you adapt to the changing customer expectations. And when you find out that a business could text, I could tell you you're going you're gonna to use them. I know I do because it, that's easier for me. I'd far rather order a product through text. Maybe I'm just a nerd, but I don't think I'm alone on this one. With Podium reviews, text customers, they'll leave an online review that improves your search rankings. Podium web chat on your website. Let's website visitors text with their team right from your homepage. And your team can respond right from their phones, which is really nice for them. It, it, they don't have to change, you know, adjust their life to, to respond. There's Podium video chat. You can use that to meet with customers. You can get paid fast over text with Podium payments. And it all comes together in the Podium inbox, which keeps leads warm and lets you respond to feedback easily all in one place. I think you're going to love Podium. And just take a look at the 
testimonials on the Podium website. The Bridal Collection. A lot of small businesses. I mean, this is really who this is for. A big business probably already has a solution, if not Podium. But if you don't, if you're uh, the Bridal Collection, Lynn, she's the owner there. She processed $200,000 in no-contact payments. She says, we don't have to take credit cards into the store. We can do it completely remotely. Podium has been a godsend for us. Uh, South Tampa Family and Cosmetic Dentistry. This My dentist uses it. It's really cool. They were able to get nearly 1,200 reviews, by the way, 4.9 stars if you're in South Tampa. Uh, Dr. Wyatt says the number of walk-ins as a result of our reviews has skyrocketed. Podium is a great way to stay in touch, to keep in touch, to do the things customers want to do on the platform your customers already know how to use. They don't have to surf to your website they don't have to make a phone call. They just use text. Find out how Podium can help your business reach more customers. You can get started for free today. And as I said, the onboarding is fast and easy. Podium.com slash twit. You can see a demo at that website too. Podium.com slash twit. We thank them so much for supporting This Week in Tech. We thank you for supporting This Week in Tech by using that special address. Podium, P-O-D-I-U-M, Podium dot com slash twit did father robert did you solve the google io puzzle no no I, I i didn't find out about that till today i've been focusing on religious stuff oh that darn religious stuff <laughs> i know right so this is one of the things i've i just i you know google last week mike elgin said something i thought was actually you know, once he said it, a light bulb went off. He said, Sundar Pichai is the worst CEO in Silicon Valley. That Google has been mismanaged ever since Larry Page and Sergey Brin left, ever since Eric Schmidt left. And I, I find it hard to deny that. But there are some things that Google spirit still comes through. And I really like the puzzles that they do. Now, the puzzle's over, I guess, because everybody knows Google I.O. is going to be online May 18th through 20th. But last week, it was a fun puzzle using... Oh, here it is. You can still go to the puzzle. It uses punch cards. Uh, huh? Oh, I love punch cards. I know. <laughs> so the first thing is, who said this? Well, anybody can just Google that. It matters little first who arrives at an idea rather than what is significant is how far that idea... Uh, rather, what is significant is how far that idea can go. So everybody knows you just put this in quotes. It matters... Little, by the way, <laughs> it, it's gotten a lot easier since everybody has searched for this. Who first arrives? <laughs> yeah, right. Who first arrives? Let's put that in quotes. See who said that. Uh, Sophie Germain, first search result. All right, we're going to type that in. Now, this is where you really want to pay attention, i.e. G-E-R-M-A-N. I think it's I-N. Oh, there's right. Oh, very good. See, you win already. Way, uh, Leo, it works on Bing as well. Does it really? <laughs> yeah, so you know. Just in case. Now, I think my screen is, uh, yeah, there we go. Okay. So pay attention. Do not pass the next, press the next button until you note oh, yes. where these punches are. Okay. S. Oh, this is bringing back really o bad memories. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> o P. H I E, because if you submit that, your next task is to create a punch card. This is where I stopped. 
<laughs> oh, okay. I got to do this before I sleep now. Yeah. Oh, my yeah. God. It's actually not hard, but it's fun. Surely you've done this before, the text says. This year, you'll greet the planet anew from right where you are. Write a well-known test program <clears throat> composed Hello, of world. two worlds. Yeah, two <laughs> words. Very good. Often the first program written when learning to code. Hello, world. So I'm guessing you just write hello, world, by punching the proper holes in here but you got to know what you're doing because uh, i hope you paid attention to sophie germain i did not <laughs> so i'm punching randomly and i can <laughs> the earliest programming was done this way yeah. just punching yes. random just print holes in a card invalid 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 submission try again try again <laughs> so anyway have fun yeah see robert i thought you'd enjoy that yeah invalid you know i it's fun to see these again, but I do not have fond memories of punch cards. No, of course not. But these, the good news is you cannot fold, spindle, or mutilate. So No, no. I never had a problem with that. Uh, oh. So <laughs> I had a final project that I was putting carefully into boxes. And as oh, I was no. dropping it in, oh, no. I, the stack flipped out. Oh, And I mean, that's, it's basically gone. They don't number those. Back in order. Yeah. You just might as well punch some new ones. Yeah. It's not great. Yeah. Uh, why were you doing punch? You're a young man. Why were you doing? I didn't even have to use punch cards. Why were you doing punch cards? You have to remember, I, I did some early classes, and that's what we had. That's all you had. We, we, we weren't even to, to Pascal yet. Oh, God. <laughs> Picks, we were doing Fortran with punch cards. Here's here, another. Okay. By the way, I mentioned that Sundar Pajai, terrible CEO. Anybody want to? Say no, that's I'm wrong. Anybody? No, apparently not. Okay. <laughs> Just, you know, I mean, that's kind of controversial. I mean, uh, but, and I, and I've, I, uh, when Sundar was running uh, the Chromebook division, I really had a huge amount of respect for him. I thought he was a great guy. He was a smart guy. Eh, I don't know if he's done the best with Google. Maybe it's he's not his fault. Maybe somebody else. He seems like a smart guy, but I think it's just Google seems to lack a uh, vision. <laughs> I think is is kind of what yeah. it is. They're kind yeah. of just keeping on, keeping on. Well, I could cite a few things yeah. that I like about what Google's doing these days, but it's such a black box. You know, you can't yeah. really opine on yeah. what's going yeah. on internally. Here's here's an when interesting. When I think of Sundar Pichai, I automatically compare him to someone like Satya Nadella, and Satya Nadella has evolved Microsoft and taken oh, them in a completely uh, different direction and revitalized. Them. So yeah, maybe Sundar Pichai is not. He's not horrible, but. He hasn't done that. He's basically the maintenance CEO. Yeah, and the problem with um, Silicon Valley companies is if you just maintain, your plane is going to slowly sink. It's not exactly. eventually you're going to hit a mountain. I mean, it's just not. Yeah. So here's an example. Uh, when Android 11 came out uh, on Pixel devices, Pixel 4 XL, Pixel 4a took a major hit in performance. We, we won't. We don't know if the five. And 4A 5G did because they were released with it 11 on it. So we never had any benchmarks prior to Android 11. So the latest Pixel drop, Google started rolling it out in April. All of a sudden, all of these phones are suddenly performing like significantly better. Apparently, Android 11 had some horrific bug that was causing a degradation from 30 to 50% in 3D Mark performance. Suddenly, the Pixel 5 score goes up like 50%. 
people who had, as I do, a Pixel 4 XL had noticed uh, performance degradation with Android 11. Hey, good news. The latest Android update, April 2011, 2021, is going to improve it. It includes some performance optimizations for certain graphics-intensive apps and games. That's just, to me, that's, a, that's sloppy. Release an update. Yeah, it's, but look, like if, if this was on just a standard Android phone, I would understand it. Okay, you have to do some testing. Maybe some testing was missed. This is the flagship. Yeah. You did not test against the flagship? Yeah. Yeah. Or you uh, did and you let it slide. And then or you didn't like, care. Why? Why, and, why and, would you let slide? 30 to 50% is, is significant. Not nothing. That's big. It's a big deal. Honestly, I feel like let it slide is the operative phrase at google these days it's like wow. and there was even a rumor oh they're not going to do a 5a google had to say no no we're going to do a 5a really but but you know it's like i wouldn't it would everybody believed it. it's like yeah they really didn't seem that enthused about the five to be honest it was a sleepy time performance here's another uh, piece of evidence um waymo google's uh, self-driving vehicle arm was on track in 2018, they announced plans to buy up to 20,000 Jaguar I-Pace electric cars, up to 62,000 more Chrysler Pacifica vans for their self-driving fleet. They announced plans to launch a driverless commercial taxi service before the end of 2018. So wait a minute, 20,000 Jaguars, 62,000 Chryslers, that's uh, what, 82,000 cars. They now, in their fleet, have well over 600. <laughs> Well over. And they're all going really slow through Las Vegas. <laughs> well over <laughs> 600. Right. Um, they're all doing a loop, a slow loop. <laughs> is that, can you blame that on the, the, how difficult self-driving vehicle is and maybe it's not their fault? Or, I mean, by the way, at the same time as this, we learned this, uh, CEO John Krafchick announced he's stepping down. Um because there's nothing to do, frankly. <laughs> he, he came in, uh, you know, he was a former auto exec who came in in 2015 to, to take Waymo to the moon. Instead, eh, we got about 600 cars. That's a, but, I mean, that's remember just, all of those all of those plans were made at a time when that industry looked like it was really taking off. CBS so that's the question. Flush. Yeah, yeah. And then, and then they realized... Wow, this is actually a lot harder than we thought it was going to be. The technical difficulties. So maybe this is way off the Google's scale. Google's fault. This is way. This is just the way of way it is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, and there were there were a bunch of setbacks with some of the accidents that happened, right? You know, with a lot of the self driving right. tech. I think that has also made people more cautious. S slow down about sort of full steam ahead when yeah. there are you know a lot of problems that need to get ironed somebody, out. Somebody said they should name it way less. <laughs> <laughs> well I, I think I think the accident in Arizona brought to the front the fact that if you've got beta software in a self-driving car, you kill people. It, yeah. It's it's not like the rest of the industry where okay we'll fix it in the next version. And then they realized uh yeah this this is why Detroit took so long to make cars yeah. because you have you're dealing with tech that. But Detroit killed. also killed thirty five thousand people last year in cars. So well, yeah, I mean, some of that is is just the people being less comfortable with like computers making that decisions than people making that decisions. Because right. you're totally right. Like I mean, if I kill you, all well, the time, it's my fault. But if you're, you're a person, you. you're you're not perfect. But a computer is supposed to be perfect. So right. if a computer kills someone. 
how do, we can't even arrest a computer, right? Like, what, what are we going to do about that? Absolutely. Right. And Dan, as a science fiction writer, do you, does your brain go down the road of, okay, so not only can these cars be dangerous to the people using them as they're intended, but then they can be co-opted and weaponized oh, and, you know, all, all the terrible totally. conclusions totally. that can I, come I, from I have automation. this huge... I have this huge argument with my my best friend from college is an emergency room doctor, and he is all aboard the self-driving car idea. He loves this because he sees so many people come in oh, I as like victims of yeah. accidents. Yeah. And on the flip side, you know, I, I started in my tech career as a programmer and I have seen the problems the programs right. have run into. And I'm like, how could you ever trust a computer to do that? It can barely like do these simple <laughs> algorithms, right? Like right. I'm I can hardly do a range check in Java and yeah, you want exactly. to drive down the road. You want to let it drive a car? <laughs> yeah. Look, a- we're all going to be okay with the AI in our car until that AI picks a political party and then all then we're good. Dan right. Dan, you're 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 revealing a secret that programmers try to hide. We see the code. We know everything's a house of cards. Oh, no. It's amazing yeah, it's, anything it's, works. It, I it constantly baffles me. I mean and, and as anybody who's used modern technology and been like just this afternoon, I was trying to listen to a podcast on like an airplay speaker while I was folding laundry, and I was like, it just wouldn't do it. And I was like, I don't know. I don't know what's <laughs> happening. Like, I have no idea how to fix this. I don't know what's broken. Oh. And, you know, I, I sympathize. It's hard problems. But I, I, I think when those problems move over to like, well, let's let it drive our cars, I, I, it terrifies me. I don't like it. <laughs> actually, I quoted 35,000 auto deaths. Uh, and actually, in 2020, it was up 24% to 42,000. For some reason, more people died in pandemic. It's the highest auto death rate since 1924. Huh. We thought that there makes were no fewer. Sense. We well, were driving. It's an I interesting. There were so many people who, who thought, like, there's no traffic. I can. Because ex- I definitely saw that. Good. There were people, like, mm-hmm. zooming around very my good. town. Yeah. So it's kind of a mystery, but that's what the experts think is uh, that. Because there was less, less traffic, people sped. And, of course, the faster you go, the higher rate of deaths by accident. So I suspect there are fewer miles driven, but they were driven at a much higher right. speed. And people drag raced, too. We yeah. did hear a lot of that yeah. going on. So in a way, you know, when you see a number like that, um, a, how many deaths have there been from self-driving vehicles? It's fewer than five. It's oh, yeah. three, sure. I think, something like that. Um, 40 versus 42,000. And, and if you think, well, if, if everything were a self-driving vehicle, would it be zero? Probably not. But it wouldn't be 42,000, right? Probably not. I mean, it's unclear, right? We're, the, we're still in such early phases. And I think there is an argument for that. But I think it takes doesn't take into account the the intangibles of it, right? Like, there are all these weird questions. And, and you know, maybe Denise has an input on this. But, like, what's, like, liability like, right? If you get hit by a self-driving car is it the person who was behind the wheel who wasn't driving is it the person who wrote the software is it the person who built the hardware platform it's like you dan you wrote the crap software <laughs> <laughs> that killed I mean, that, 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 yeah, the algorithm failed to identify you as a person like is that your fault <laughs> yeah. i don't know that's it seems wild i think what do they say they say the insurance companies say who's at fault if, if a self-driving car crashes i remember reading something I think the company that made the car, but I don't know. Not 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 the passenger. 
I guarantee you plaintiff, plaintiff's lawyers aren't going to take that for an answer. They're going <laughs> to go back to their, their first year Sue torts class, revisit, revisit all of causation, which leads to liability, and, oh. and apply it to this situation, and we might get some new law. Uh, the, the answer is whoever has the biggest pockets right. is responsible. Mm-hmm. Uh, here is an article from... Hardison and Cochran, attorneys at law in apparently North Carolina. Um, in North Carolina, auto accident lawyers routinely help injured, blah, 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 blah. And this is probably just an ad for their services. Um, ah, self-driving who's responsible? In general, liability rests with one, with one or more, to your point, Denise, of three mm-hmm. options. Human error, vehicle malfunction... Lacks government oversight. Yeah, the government's got deep pockets. And improper design and manufacturing. So let's just sue them all. Right. Yeah. The only person, I guess, uh, not responsible is the guy in the back seat. And maybe even he caused a problem. We don't know. Facebook uh, facing a little scrutiny because, oh, golly, another 500 million user information leaked. This is old information, right? Except as the story evolved, Facebook looked more and more culpable. The data from roughly 533 million Facebook users included things like profile names, Facebook ID numbers, email addresses, and phone numbers. I mean, this is all stuff that, you know, is probably out there anyway if you're on Facebook. Facebook said initially, oh... This is the this is the breach we reported in 2019. We fixed that in August of 2019. But now we're starting to think that it actually is was scraped from Facebook by a, using a Facebook tool. And um so as Facebook eventually explained this is from a Wired in a background comments to Wired in its Tuesday blog as well. Uh, it's an enti- it's not, no, that 533 million records, it's an entirely uh, different data set. <laughs> this, this one uh, was created by abusing a flaw in the Facebook address book contacts import feature. It's kind of ingenious, really is. <laughs> right. I, I mean, I, it's basically a, a person created a contact list with every phone number in existence. Oh. Shoved it through the tool. Clever. And then as Facebook does, it assumed that if it was in your contacts list, you must know the person. And it said, oh, do you want to add your friends on Facebook? (laughs) (laughs) Boom. This is is why we fuzz our identity. Yeah, maybe now. Now this is the answer to that question. Uh, By the way, that same year, uh, there was a vulnerability discovered in Instagram. Same in contact import, uh, same problem. Uh, Facebook said, no, we already knew about that and we've, we've fixed it. Now, um, I just, I mean, it just gets worse. Uh, it's really unclear if this is all old data, if there's new data. We had a bug in our system, uh, but did we fix it? Did we fix it completely? It's just a, it's just a mess. Um, I get. What do you tell people? Uh, if you put stuff on Facebook, assume, I've always said this, assume it's going to be public. I, I've just been telling people don't use Facebook. Don't oh, well, that's Facebook. another way don't to do it. Don't use Instagram, don't use WhatsApp. But, I mean, very few are listening. Face- and I've been telling people if you're going to use those services, don't use your real data. Die. Right. 
obviously. Yeah. Right? Um, Facebook says we're not going to notify you. Just assume. <laughs> it's we're too pre- many. We're going to pre-notify it's you. Too- we're just going to when you sign up for the account, yeah, it's we will too notify many people. You that your information we, has been compromised. We, we can't. It should, we're going to just contact like the plaintiffs' you lawyers aren't going to listen breach. to insurance companies. Yeah. They're not going to listen to Facebook either. Yeah, yeah, we, no. yeah, uh, yeah. Microsoft is apparently in talks to buy Nuance. This is, this for me, the illustration here is a little fish being eaten by a big fish, by a bigger fish, by a bigger fish, by a bigger fish. Nuance bought up all of the voice, to te- the speech-to-text software that was on the market, right? And, and at the time, a lot of fax software. I don't suppose that's much of a profit center anymore. <laughs> um, so... Microsoft had its own. Remember, they had Learnout and Housebee, I think. And, and then this this collapsed. The whole, there was Dragon. Naturally speaking, Nuance bought it. There was it, it collapsed the whole market into into Nuance. Revenue of one point four eight billion dollars on in, a net income of ninety one million dollars. They lost two hundred seventeen million dollars the year before. Microsoft apparently uh, in talk, they just want to buy everybody. Are they still talking about buying Discord? I don't know if that's still on the table. I think Nuance used to be the one that underpinned Siri in the earliest days. Siri on, used uh, Nuance. That's right. Yeah, they used their technology. But it was never. It was one of those things that like everybody kind of knew, but it, Apple had never specifically right. said. I think, and then Apple, you know, of course, because it wanted to control everything, it built it all in house yeah. in house instead. So well, that makes that, sense. I think they that used- probably caused some of their. Popularity, you go off a cliff. That's there. where they lost two hundred seventeen million. It, yeah, well, who knows what really Apple is paying? So much both between the fact that Apple did it and everybody else, right? Like Amazon was doing voice recognition, and Microsoft's doing voice recognition, and Google's doing voice recognition, right. and all the big tech companies started doing it in house. Nobody needs Nuance anymore. Right. The price is fifty six dollars a share. I don't know. I should. I could. I should have been prepared. I could have looked up Nuance's stock price. But I'll be frank with you. I don't really care. <laughs> Um, I don't, I, this is another one. I, I, it wasn't that I didn't care. I just couldn't bring myself to watch the monkey playing ping pong using <laughs> Elon Musk's Neuralink. He's got, see the big wire in his head. Oh my God. Did anybody watch that? So I don't have to. I only watched it cause it was no. on Fallon and Fallon's joke was then the monkey took a call from his buddy monkey and asked how all those shampoo trials were going and hey, i'm just here playing I, pong I, I feel so bad for this poor macaque uh they put a chip in its head um and uh by the way they come the the to show you how little they care about the monkey its name is apparently pager oh my god come on man <laughs> really you couldn't come up with better than pager uh, and my There's brother Blackberry more, here, more, and yeah, more recent PDA. Yeah. You know? PD, my brother PDA. Pager is at first shown using a joystick, then eventually using only its mind to. Uh, to what is he? Is he vaping there? What is that? What's going on? <laughs> what's going on there? <laughs> what the hell? What the hell have you done why, to this why monkey? Are we, why are we just turning monkeys into the worst versions of ourselves? This is like sitting around all day. This is not progress. Vaping. This is just annoying. 
bringing them down to our level. Today, we are pleased to reveal the Lynx capability to enable a macaque monkey named Pager to move a cursor on a computer screen using neural activity with a 1024 electrode fully implanted neural recording and data transmission device termed the N1 Link. Oh, that poor monkey. I just feel bad for him. First, they named me Pager. Then they put a chip in my head. Now I have to play Pong for the rest of my life. Nightmare. At least get him a better game. God, Pong, really? But would you want a Neuralink if it would make your Call of Duty scores much better? If I could play Valheim without uh, actually getting out of bed, maybe. If you could play Valheim while broadcasting. <laughs> while I'm doing a show, maybe. <laughs> now we're talking. Okay. Now we're talking. Uh, I mean, the applications for, for people who are disabled are... Of course, but I but there's a long way between. Well, Dan, you're the science fiction writer. How long before we before we can use this to do something really interesting? I guess if you could play ping pong, you're pretty close, right? I I, I mean, it's, pong is fairly simple. I would think that there's probably a ways to go before you start getting more complex stuff. That said, I mean, the, the, I, I agree with Denise. The, the the technologies for like assistive stuff is huge, and that's a huge like opportunity there i think that the opportunity before it's commercialized i think it's i think we're a ways off right. and i think the getting over the hump of would you if you are a person who doesn't need a device implanted in your brain will you electorally get something implanted in but your brain denise has a I good think that's point a big hump. if you're you know if you're a paraplegic and you can't sure you know this is right. the only way i mean this is great better than a, t a stick or Puff mechanism. I mean, but but you're if right. you're just looking for it for like, oh, I like I'll improve my Call of Duty game. I think we I think we got no. a long way to go long before way to people go are willing that. to make that jump. This is not the metaverse yet. Let's take I a mean, break. The same and then... sort of technology is also being used in um, Parkinson's patients. Yes, the little electrodes throughout they the put, brain. They, I actually it works. I find that far more fascinating. It, it works. It works. No, I have a friend, good friend. Uh, his implant it's completely halted the tremors. It it's incredible. It it's a it's really a miracle cure. And then there's the cochlear implants, which are also mm -hmm. fascinating. Um what microphone are you using, Robert? I, that, I just noticed that. Is that something new? Uh, this is a Hyo PR forty, but oh, I Oh you got a good I three D printed my own isolation mount. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> You're such a geek. I thought I thought you three uh, you thought you were gonna say I three D printed a leather driving glove to to wrap around it because that's kinda <laughs> kinda what it looks like. Uh, let's take a little break. Final words in a moment with our fabulous panel. Our show today brought to you by Barracuda. Barracuda Hacker, you know the name, one of the best known names in enterprise security. Uh, this message from Barracuda. Hackers, they're always looking for the weakest link in your security configuration. And of course, the way hackers get into your network so often is with phishing emails through your email security. If you can find those email vulnerabilities before anybody else, you can defend against cyber attacks. So Barracuda has created something new and very cool. It's their threat analyzer tool. From traditional malware to the latest spear phishing account takeover, conversation hijacking, Barracuda has identified 13 types of email threats. And in, you can't just say, oh, block them all. You know, you have to have several layers of security working together to protect you effectively against all 13. And if any one of those is still vulnerable, you know the bad guys are going to figure out which one. 
and they're going after you. It's literally all they spend their time on. When they find that gap in your security, they choose the appropriate threat type, they customize it to get into your system, and they can end up costing you millions of dollars and your reputation in the market. Now, here's where it gets hard. With hundreds of highly targeted personalized threat variants emerging daily and many different kinds of on-prem and cloud-based email systems, it can be challenging to identify your specific gaps or vulnerabilities. I invite you to take the Barracuda Threat Analyzer. It's simple and fast to use. Barracuda.com slash twit. You'll answer some multiple choice questions about your email security setup. Shouldn't take more than a couple of minutes. And then the Barracuda Threat Analyzer will provide a custom report telling you which threat types you're most vulnerable to. You'll get custom recommendations on how to strengthen your defenses against those attacks. And by the way, this is all free and easy to use. Barracuda's December spear phishing report found 12%, 12% of all spear phishing attacks are business email compromise. And that's almost doubled from 2019. That's because these attacks work. According to the FBI's most recent internet crime report, business email compromise attacks led to over $3.5 billion in losses last year. Government of Puerto Rico lost $2.6 million in a single attack last year. This is all through email. Does your email security protect against email compromise? Try the Barracuda Threat Analyzer today. It's cost you nothing. You'll get a full report showing you exactly what you need to do to secure your email. Barracuda.com slash twit. Find out where those hidden threats are. Barracuda's Threat Analyzer. Barracuda.com slash twit. Thank you, Barracuda, for supporting this week in tech. Hey, before we go on, real quick uh, programming note. I'll be back here tomorrow morning, 8.30 Pacific, 11.30 Eastern Time with Sam Abel Samad. Uh, we're going to be covering Jensen Wong's keynote for the uh, NVIDIA GPU Technology Conference. This is a... Normally something we don't cover, but I think NVIDIA is going to have a lot to say. They're very, uh, you know, right now they're, I think, one of the prime movers in technology. Uh, and I'm very interested in what they have to say. Sam's going to join us because, of course, they're big in self-driving vehicles. But, of course, gaming, Bitcoin mining, um, machine learning, NVIDIA is everywhere. So uh, if you're around a Monday morning, uh, 8.30 Pacific, 11.30 Eastern, uh, good news, uh, Wong has said he's only going to do an hour, <laughs> so it won't be a long morning. We'll just uh, get to the meat of the matter quickly. Join me uh, at 8.30. So, I better, in fact, we better run run through the rest of these stories. I'm, ex- I'm going to be exhausted. E3 2021, virtual, but they have set the dates. Um, they will go live again in L.A., they hope, in 2022. Still, I still waiting for Mobile World Congress to say, "Okay, we give," but uh, they still want to do a live event uh, next month, or is it this month already? There, there are a few. I'm waiting for DefCon. I'm waiting for CES. Uh, I mean, these are conferences that people are going to be spending a lot of money very soon to yeah. try to start setting something up if they don't announce. And it's become a little bit of a ritual to say, "Oh, we're going to be live," and then mm, never mind. Right. Um, I don't know why they, you know, I mean, do what E3 did. Said, look, you know, June's coming. We'll do E3 virtually next year. It's okay. Next year's fine. I mean, to the group, 2021 is pretty much a write-off for live events, right? I mean, even in the States, if we get that magical number of vaccinations, that's not the rest of the world. Right. 
That's a big problem, isn't it? We're, you know, I'm starting to feel a little guilty. Uh, we're doing 3 million vaccinations a day in the U.S. And how many vaccinations a day are they doing in Italy right now, Father Robert? Uh, it's like 15 or 16, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not, it's not for lack of trying or wanting to do it. You can't get them. Right. We bought them all up. And apparently, well, there's, there is a little bit of incompetence. I mean, it's okay. just a tiny, just a little. little tiny bit. <laughs> a soupçon. You could say that if, yeah. you know, USA, USA, we bought them up because we could. You know, we, we figured it out. Um, LG's closing its mobile phone business worldwide. I think the kiss of death was when they announced the phone. Remember the wing? They announced it earlier this year. It <laughs> flips around and turns into a T. I thought it was cool. I, I heard it was terrible, but I thought I like the idea. I like the thinking outside the box. Yeah, like, it's that outside was what the LG box. Always seemed to do good. Yeah. They did like weird stuff that nobody else was ever going to do. Yeah. It didn't work for them, but I appreciated it. There were some really I, I nice. Mean, I, LG I like phones. outside the box, but at some point, someone in the testing lab should have <laughs> held the phone and said, "There's no good way to hold this. this what are we doing? Is, is I need it, to rethink are my we life. Trying to fly? What is? What is going I think on here? I think the nail was already in their coffin. Unfortunately, speaking that, of so coffins. Last ditch effort. Nice segue for me. Empathy is out of stealth. A digital assistant aimed at bereaved families. Oh. It's a, it was only a matter of time. This feels like something out of a science fiction novel, Dan. Yeah, that's, that's so what is I, this like a parking page for social media accounts? Is that the thing? We provide a digital companion in the form of native apps that are built to empower bereaved families. What? Okay, the CEO says it's like GPS for the recently bereaved. Now, now do you now do you understand? <laughs> no, that's not a problem anyone has. Uh, my bereaved aren't the body. Really moving. <laughs> it's an AI-based platform. They are moving. You have bigger problems. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we shouldn't laugh, but it's funny. Okay. Speaking of uh, uh, end of the line, uh, Logitech is discontinuing Harmony remotes. This is criminal. These are the only good universal remotes. I just had to buy one of mine, uh, a button died on it, and I couldn't find that model anymore. And so I bothered one of my co-hosts on one of my shows. And he's like, oh, yeah, I don't use mine more. I'm like, I'll send it to me. And I'm like, "This is now when this one dies, I will have no recourse because I I love my Logitech. It's not the best. It's time to start hoarding. It's time to start yeah, hoarding. It's one of those things where it's like, it wasn't that it was good, but it was so much better than everything else that was out there. Right. I've used some other ones, and they just all fall flat. The secret sauce was the database, right? Because it knew how everything yeah. worked, and you could just say, I have this, this, and this. And the database would say, good, we've programmed your remote. It was so much easier just, than anybody it else. It works nicely, too. Yeah, yeah. and it's just yeah. smart, and, and it was flexible. And, yeah, the software was terrible, but it worked. Harmony says they will continue to maintain the database. We're just not going to manufacture anymore. And I have to think it just be, they said it just, the business is too small. And I have to think it's been shrinking because nowadays, you know, it used to be you'd have 20 remotes on the, on the sofa arms, yeah. right? But nowadays, really, uh, you have a streamer. That streamer remote turns on the TV, turns up and down the volume, and then plays the thing back. You probably don't need a harmony as much. Yep. Yeah, and I think most TVs come with, like you said, either the TV or the stream. Something come comes with, with a program that works yeah. with everything. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then there's CEC. So my TV, I have uh, Xbox on it, uh, Apple TV, and uh, a Google TV. 
Oh, and a Nintendo Switch. But I turned on CEC, and no matter if I just pick up the remote for one of those devices, it the TV turns on, switches to that channel, I use it, and I turn off the TV. So I guess it's really become easy. Easier. And, and most of us have TVs that have apps that are updated That's and true current too. and perfect yeah, for, right. for five, ten years. So it's just the, uh, you know, the times are changing. Uh, right to repair very much in the news. Colorado uh, has decided to deny the right to repair after stories of environmental disaster and wheelchairs on fire. Uh, the right to repair bill died in the Colorado State Legislature. Three hours of testimony from business leaders, disabled advocates, a nine-year-old activist. Legislators said there are too many unanswered questions. The proposed law is too broad. Uh, it's not the only state. About half of the states now are considering right to repair laws. And I think there's even a right to repair, federal right to repair movement. But uh, actually, Colorado's law was was only 11 pages it was, it was pretty simple. If you own it, you can fix it. Period. Uh, but that's there's too many unanswered questions. Says John Deere will be very happy. Yeah, is John Deere in Colorado? I'm sure they oh, lobbied everywhere. like crazy. Yeah. No, but I mean their their headquarters. Uh, anyway, uh, sad, but you know, not the end for right of repair. There's a good. Um, who did the interview with a System 76? Lewis Rossman did a good, uh, on YouTube, did a good interview with the guy, an engineer at System 76 on Right to Repair. Highly recommended. And there is, finally, <laughs> there's nothing to watch on TV. So we're just going to keep doing this show for the next 18 hours because <laughs> streaming services have finally run out of TV. Is that true? Bloomberg says it's true. We knew it would happen sometime. Production was halted for months because of COVID. It started up again, but it takes, you know, it takes a long time to put a show out. I don't know. I, uh, I have to say there don't seem to be very many good movies on. The number of originals on Netflix has declined 12%. Um, it usually goes up every year, so a drop in 12% is significant. Um, HBO's biggest releases in March... <laughs> a recut Justice League, the Zack Snyder cut. Hey, that was one movie that lasted as long as three. So that was a, you know, that was good. <laughs> Wait, did did have you watched it? Yeah, I did never saw the it? original. I loved it. Yeah, I thought it was great, and I I, I did see the original. I watched it over three nights because it was four hours long. <laughs> but but and I'm not a comic book fan, and I didn't see the original because it was so badly reviewed. Um, but I thought it was good because I, as not as, as a non-comic book fan, I liked all the backstory stuff. Mm-hmm. What, why did you like it, Denise? What, what? I thought it was a better Wonder Woman movie than the last Wonder Woman oh, the, movie. Well, anything's, <laughs> <laughs> anything's better than the last Wonder Woman movie. That was no, horrible. You're, you're, you hit it. I loved all the backstory stuff. Yeah. That's and what it made he added, me want right? to go. I never watched uh, the Superman, Batman, no, Dawn of good. Justice. And I'm a DC I guy. Watch that. I mean, if I if I mean, I am not a Marvel fan as much as DC. I grew up on Batman and Superman, so for me, I like that. I like to see them. Mm-hmm. I, I'm teaching a communications course at the Gregorian uh, University, and one of the chapters we I did was on, on editing, on um, color correcting. And I do wow. side by sides cool. from the theatrical release and the Snyder cut to show how the exact same scenes, the exact same actors, mostly the same pacing, 
feel completely different when you no just kidding. change the shade. Just because of the... It's, it's so he changed the coloring. Yep. He reshaded it. I know there was a lot of new CGI done. They shot a lot of additional stuff, the backstory stuff. So it is a very different movie. Just mm -hmm. the just the shading. That's interesting. Just the what did Go he do? YouTube, did he brighten man. it up? No, he dulled it. Dulled it. He, he, he like took away the comic book colors yeah. and made it a more dull tone. Yeah. Uh, go to YouTube and, and look for Wonder Woman side by side. And they'll, they'll play both scenes side by side. And it feels completely different, even though it's the same scene. It's, a, it's wonderful. Well, there you go. I'm, I have something to watch tonight. 15 minute YouTube that's, video. That solves but... that streaming problem. <laughs> <laughs> Father Robert Ballas there. DigitalJesuit.com is live. You got to go there. Uh, I am going to be uh, in uh, instantly. I already have an account on the Discord server. I think it's for we'll Minecraft. Get up for you. I, yeah. well, and I want to play. You told me about this new game, Factorio. I almost called yes. it Rustorio. It is kind of rusty, <laughs> but it's uh, but it looks like a lot of fun, and I want to play that. So if I'm already on the server, what what do I do to get into the other games? Do I have to? Well, because request? once you're in the Discord server, yeah, it automatically grants you access to the uh, the other servers. Oh, and perfect. All DigitalJesuit.com, well, Minecraft at DigitalJesuit.com, and so on and so forth. But I'm going to send you a donation because uh, you you want to finance this. I, if if you feel like it, great. I mean, we've we've got this guy. He's in the chat room right now, McLovin, who has been basically offering his services and hardware for free. Oh, for that's two great! Years. Thank you, McLovin. And yeah, we just want to expand it because there is an interest. People love playing in a server that isn't completely toxic. And you never know when you might run into a cardinal. <laughs> Actually, this is true. <laughs> yeah. You may not know you're running into a cardinal. <laughs> oh, he'll own you. <laughs> Card cardinal Tagley takes no prisoners when you play online. So the current games are Minecraft, Rust, and Factorio. You say planning upcoming games, TF2, Terraria, Among Us, and my game, Valheim. I, Valheim. Valheim, I'm playing solo right now, but I, I would love to get in a server with some other people. It you know who so else plays, plays Valheim? Who? I play, uh, so I will be playing Valheim. You Good. play Valheim. Good. Uh, Brian Burnett plays Valheim, and awesome. so does Alex. Oh, nice. We'll all McLevin be is saying we've had the Pope. No, McLevin's. Yes, what? Is he, yeah. is he joking? Which game? What game? Uh, Minecraft. Did he build anything? No, he, he looked at it and touched and typed a message. He didn't. He didn't like sleep in one of the beds and make it make it his spawn point. <laughs> no, it was basically he was just coming through the house and we're like, "Hey, can you take a look at this?" Really oh, that's quick really me? cool. Yeah. yeah, really cool. Thank you, McLovin, for uh, helping uh, Father Robert out. That's pretty. That's pretty exciting. Uh, Mr. Dan Morin is at sixcolors dot com a at d Morin on uh, the Twitter at d Morin and. His books are available at uh, Six Color. No, you, you have a. Where do I go for your books? Is it Dan Morin? Anywhere. They're, Anywhere. You can go to dmorin.com, but they're on Amazon. They're in bookstores. I've got one right here. I'll hold it up for the camera. Hold it up. Isn't it nice? There it is. Ooh. The Aleph Extraction, the latest. But if I buy it from your through your website, you get a. a a cut right it's, it's not even uh it's not even for sale on my website but i've got oh. links to amazon barnes and noble kobo yeah, basically but, any but if, but if any i books. buy it through the link to amazon you get extra money i hope probably i think i've got an affiliate link probably on my he, site, doesn't yeah, <laughs> he doesn't That's even know he doesn't even know my publisher does all the important oh stuff, so yeah well that I means just, they get I'm the cuts yeah yeah that's right i'm yeah. just the talent yeah 
Well, I can't wait. That's exciting. Thank you, Dan. It's great to see you again. And, of course, always a pleasure and a privilege to have Denise Howell on the show, especially when there's thorny legal questions. But anytime. Thank you so much for having me. Can I give two PSAs before we run? PSA time. All right. So the first is is a more serious one. This week is the anniversary of Kurt Cobain's death. I don't know if anybody caught Saturday Night Live last night, but that dress kid Cuddy was so brilliantly wearing was a tribute. Both of his oh. ensembles were tributes to Kurt Cobain. He was only 27. Yeah. That's a bad so, year generally for everybody. Our national suicide prevention hotline is 800-273-8255. Good. Uh, it's getting harder and harder to find people who haven't been touched by this in their lives. Yep. So yep. definitely be there for your friends and family and Thank for you. all and sundry. Uh, and then on a on a lighter note, um, tomorrow is when Sam Adams starts giving away free beer. <laughs> um, Wait a minute, actually, what? <laughs> they don't give it away tomorrow. Uh, it's uh, the day that they're going to start. I guess the first ten thousand people who post to social media. Uh, shoot, I don't know what the hash, hashtag is, but um, you can look it up. If you post that you have been vaccinated, you don't. Please don't post your uh, vax card. But all you can do is post one of their little stickers or just a band aid on your arm. That's going to be fine uh, for the for their proof purposes. And the first ten thousand people are going to get a voucher for a free beer. Hashtag shot for Sam. There we go. And I can't believe the Boston guy didn't mention that. I didn't know. I didn't know. I didn't know, man. How could you not know? Everybody knows. Wait, Nash- why isn't Lagunitas doing something like this? Yeah, They're it's right National, the it's National <laughs> Beer Day, so it doesn't have to just be Sam Adams. Beer money for the first 10,000 people. You could post the back of your card. Would that Would that work? I know you're supposed I, to I don't the like the idea. I don't know all the, you know, ins and outs of posting cards and what people can do with your card data once they yeah. have it. But I don't know that I want the answers to those questions. Yeah. I'd just rather you keep your cards to yourselves. Yeah. All right. I got to play because I love the Sam Adams ads with the, your cousin from Boston. I got to play this one just for This doesn't take too long. I'm double parked. Next. <laughs> <laughs> He's pulling his pants down. Your cousin from Boston. Sam's on me. Indoor beers. Indoor beers. Did I get the shot? Nope. You saw the needle and passed out cold. Here you go. Continue to wear a mask. Good luck, guys. It's a breeze. Too accurate. Cousin from Boston. No I love those. I'm from Providence. It's practically Boston. Thank <laughs> you, you Denise. Boston. Thank you. Thank you so much. Great being so here. So much for being here. Thank you, Dan Morin, Father Robert Ballas here. Thank you all for joining us. We do Twit on a Sunday afternoon around 2 30 Pacific, 5 30 Eastern, 21 30 UTC. There's a live stream you can watch. You don't have to because we it's a podcast. We make it available after the fact. But if you want to watch us do it live, all the stuff we cut out later, it's twit.tv slash live. People who watch live really should chat live at irc.twit.tv, a wonderful community forum where I get all my best jokes. You can also get on-demand versions of our show and every show we do at our website, twit.tv. Oh, that's my that's my Sam Adams ad. <laughs> Twit, there we go, twit.tv. You can, uh, you can also get it on YouTube. There's a YouTube channel for all of our shows. In fact, 
go to the master channel, youtube.com slash twit, and you get links to all the shows uh, and little twit bits and so forth. Best way to do this, though, get yourself a podcast app and subscribe. In fact, while you're subscribing, leave a nice review for us, if you would. Um, we really appreciate it. Get it automatically that way every every Sunday night after the show is done. Thanks for being here, everybody. We'll see you next time. Another twit. Actually, big announcement next Sunday. Make sure you tune in. Another twit. This is amazing. Bye-bye.